Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as Against the Green. I am back today after a couple months of not being available. I was on a tractor for, you know, a couple months. Give me one second here. There we go. Perfect. So I'm back, and that was a fun and interesting experience. Um, I don't even know what to say other than, you know, it was a really good learning experience. When you go from, like, driving a minivan to, like, driving a a, a machine that's, like, the size of a small house, (laughs) it's interesting. It's interesting. So... Yeah, a couple of housekeeping things, though, um, before I get started today, because I'm going to be putting together some stuff for um, themed shows and the things. I'm currently working on getting a few guests on. I know I've said that before, but then I didn't put a whole lot of effort in because I got a little busy, but I am working on getting a few guests online Um we also got some interesting, fun things going down on Freedomizer that we are hoping to possibly bring live streaming video to you guys in the near future. Um, so we're, we've got the talks and that and work. So we will keep you guys updated on what's going on over there. Um, I will be releasing my coaching here in December. So you guys can keep, keep, keep eyes open for that. I'm redoing my against the grain website here. I am doing my coaching website, got a whole bunch of things going down. And I've got, oh my goodness, I've been doing a lot of research and stuff. And ah, it's good. It's good. I'm just tired, but I'm excited. So um, tonight, I kind of want to go over some permaculture stuff. I've been spending a lot of time starting to dive into permaculture and aquaculture and all those fun things, um, those kinds of things. I, I I don't know. It's just with all the things going on in the world lately, I mean, everybody's probably been talking about Israel and Palestine. Everybody's talking about all these other things that are going on. But I kind of want to focus on other fun things that are kind of like green thumb, like interesting, uh, slow down if that makes sense, that's focusing on nature, not because I don't care about world events, not because I don't care about, you know, other people and things that are going on. I just kind of want to focus on nature because really, like, when it comes down to it, even like, you know, this climate change sham that's going on where the government is pushing this climate change nonsense to, quote, unquote, save the planet when it comes to sustainability, but really nothing is really, truly, honestly, ever really sustainable, especially when humans get their hands on it. And, you know, there's things like the pole shift and everything going on, all that other kind of things. But, you know, these these are just natural cycles. Um, I kind of want to, I kind of want to focus on things that are like, you know, things that are growing, like storytelling. I want to go back to getting guests on the show to storytell their lives and start, you know, focusing on sharing their expertise, things that we want to know, and then focus on the soul medicine that we need in order to be able to go forward and hopefully hopefully I can actually get my video game going because that was the whole point of the show is to be doing video gaming 
screaming while I talk about these things, unless I had a guest on. Of course, I won't video game stream unless I have a guest on, and they're also playing video games. But, um, yeah, so we're going to take a quickie break here, and I am going to be right back, and we're going to start reading some articles. We talk a lot about the kingdom here, and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about, which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us uh, in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. But it's just not enough to sit and listen or to talk about or to say. You must become a doer of the word. Most people say they hate wearing shoes and would go barefoot if they knew they were allowed. People say it all the time on their social medias, but they are worried that someone will say something to them. So everyone wears the cheapest flip-flops with the least amount of fabric on them. Most people do not even know that it's completely 100% legal to go barefoot into a store. Most people think that driving barefoot is illegal but it isn't. Driving barefoot actually is safer than wearing most shoes. Going outside barefoot for a walk is one of the healthiest things you could do, but most people are afraid someone will say so. Or they quote the myths and the rumors that their grandma told them years ago. The fact is, there are no laws against driving a car, going to a store, or eating in a restaurant barefoot. So don't give in to bad fashion, hurt heels, or a broken flip-flop. For more information, please check out barefootislegal.org or find us on your favorite social media. We all know that times are tough and things are really expensive right now. So why not save a little bit of your wallet as well as the landfill? Marty.com carries high-quality products at low, low prices sometimes up to 70% off of retail. I just got a wonderful package of beef jerky for one cent sent to my house through Marty.com. Marty.com offers high-quality products at discount prices. Why? Well, sometimes products are seasonal or overstocked or packaging just changes. It's still great quality food, but it's going to end up in the landfill if we don't find some way to distribute it. And leave that to Marty.com. 
Now, if you want to save a little extra today, you can get $20 off your first order by going to our Facebook group for Dynamic Word Bible Studies and picking up a discount code there. So check out Dynamic Word Bible Studies at Facebook and find marty.com on our comments. You'll be able to get this free discount code. It's going to give you $20 off, and it's also a great way to support our show and to keep those landfills light and to save some money in your wallet. And I'm all about saving money. So check out marty.com. Just as ungrounded signals wreak havoc on radio communications, there's growing concern that because we are not grounded, we absorb tremendous amounts of electromagnetic radiation from our modern devices. EMF stands for electromagnetic field. We are all immersed in electromagnetic fields from Wi-Fi, from the wiring in our homes, and it disturbs our electrical balance. We get charged. Inside of our bodies, we get electrically charged. Some people have as much as 20 volts on their bodies, and that's not good for you. The information is provided for general informational purposes only. The contents are not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ground Therapy Incorporated makes no representations about the efficiency, appropriateness, or suitability of any specific tests, procedures, treatments, services, opinions, healthcare providers, or other information that may be contained in or available through the information provided. Hello, everybody. This is Sam, host of Against the Grain. Um, this well open world formerly known as against the green and we're going to just pop over to google because i'm going to oh there is one thing that i wanted to share i got to go to uh here and there was some sad news actually sure um if you're interested in permaculture there's a few permaculture groups out there um one of the ones that I recommend, oh, this is not the right one. Hold on. Where is Permata Culture? It would be easier if I could do these things live. There we go. Um, this group um, called Permaculture, run by Matthew Steffens, um, he has a Website, earthreforestation.org, permaculture.org, um, permaculturegaianetwork.org, global permaculture culture, global permaculture network.com. Um, his website is so full of information. They have a Facebook group, but they're trying to get away from Facebook group. Hold on here. Um, anyway, I'm just chatting with a friend right now uh, through Messenger as well. Uh, kind of multitasking a little bit tonight. Um, but this website, you can donate $15 for a year. I actually got to donate a little bit of cash, so I'm going to go donate. Um, but you can donate $15 for a whole year. And you get access to the website. You get access to so many really, really, really neat things. Um, and Matthew is actually a fairly decent guy to talk to. Um, he's left-leaning. That's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying, like, you know, just 
in terms of if you ever have a conversation with him, he is a little bit left leaning. Um, there are other permaculture groups with other people that are a little more right leaning. So, you know, depending on the circle that you want, um, there's a lot of permaculture groups. Um, but he's got a lot of really solid knowledge. I, I've never had a problem with him. I think he's a pretty freaking awesome dude. Um, from any time I've talked to him, I would con- I consider him a friend um, and a very knowledgeable friend. And he likes what he puts his money where his mouth is. He's actually across seas right now, seeing a bunch of classes, and I've been following along on the things that he's been doing. And it's been absolutely phenomenal watching him grow the permaculture network um, across seas. Um, there's also permies.com. Permies.com, you can join. It's a free forum website. There's a lot of um, information off there that you can buy. So. Um, Matthew Stevens, you pay for a membership for the year, and then you get access to everything. For me, you get a free forum, but you have to pay for a lot of the uh, inside information. Mm-hmm. So let me see. Oh, that's what I was going to go grab. I was going to go grab. There is. Hold on here. You know what? I think we'll, because I'm reading it anyway. Um, why can't I remember his name? Um, author of Permaculture. I can't remember his damn name. Um, there's a fella. He wrote a book about permaculture. And I think I want to go through it chapter by chapter and just kind of cover information and stuff in these books that he wrote on show. Um, so I feel like everybody should know. But I just got the news that Ross Mars, um, he was announcing his latest book, The Basics of Regenerative Agriculture, is now at the UK Publishers and should be out around Christmas. However, very unfortunately, um, Ross Mars um, passed away a couple days ago. Let's see um, one day ago, Ross Mars, or this is Simone Willis, Ross's daughter, sadly Ross passed away this morning from motor neuron disease. So he had just finished publishing his last book, and it's going to be available here really soon. It is called um, The Basics of Regenerative Agriculture, and that will be available, like I said, um, UK publishers and should be out around Christmas. Unfortunately, he passed away recently so it's it's getting to be really unfortunate that like a lot of the people that are the um I should say I wouldn't say they're the founders of permaculture because like really truly honestly when you look at indigenous groups across the globe um traditional indigenous groups like this is all just common knowledge to them that they've been trying to teach the average Joe, but the average Joe thinks that they can science better and do better than, you know, everybody else. So really, truly, honestly, I, I like, I, I like to say when I say founder, I don't mean like they created it because like I said, this, this information has been out there for freaking millennia. They just um, have brought it in a different way. That's, more of a mainstream way but has all indigenous knowledge at the forefront okay here 
just trying to look for some articles here. Okay, um, let me see, let me see. And like, I, I haven't really read a lot of these articles. Like I said, I've been reading more books than articles this last little while. So, okay, this is interesting. This one, you might guys, you might actually really want to check out here. Um, we're going to table. Mm-hmm. One, two, three. See, when you just go to Google and you type in like permaculture, like there's a lot of really interesting articles right now, like how to grow a permaculture food forest in your yard and why you should. I mean, this is from Life Hackers, so it's not going to be an in-depth um article like the, the, a lot of the articles that focus on permit i just want to make a little note here in case anybody's listening um a lot of the articles that focus on permaculture often focus on things like food forests um landscaping things like that um bill mollison that's his name there we go. See, when, I, when I'm when i trying to be an intellectual without being angry, I can never remember people's names I'm, when I'm trying to be chill. But when I'm angry, <laughs> I can remember everything and everything. Call that a weird a weird mental flip, but that's okay. Bill Mollison, like he wrote this book, uh, Permaculture, and he focuses, when he's talking about permaculture, like I'm talking about like indigenous systems, it's the connection of everything. It's the connection of people and culture and all these other things that get put into the permaculture. Now, when I'm reading articles from Google, it's very um, exclusive to only landscaping and um, permaculture in terms of having those symbiotic relationships and understanding the food, like the guilds and things like that. So it's like, so when I'm reading these articles, just know that there's more to permaculture than just these articles, which, you know what, I'm going to start writing down and we're going to be doing chapter by chapter from this book from Bill Mollison. So, Okay, we're just going to get into this. Here we go. So specifically this one article, um, this is from lifehacker.com, home, how to grow permaculture food forest in your yard and why you should. You can increase yield, water less, and have more time to enjoy your garden. That's generally a big bonus when it comes to starting to engage in permaculture is, you know, regenerating the soil and making it, Make nature do the work. See, this is the one thing that people have kind of got fucked up over the last little while, over the last few years, is when you work with nature, when you work with nature, utilizing nature's processes, understanding nature, and then um, rather than trying to strong arm nature, because like nature's going to do what it's going to do. And like we can get into like farming with, um, uh, copper and all those you know like ley lines and all those other things and i think that's actually be really good to get into in terms of these um more specifically 
um, getting nature to do what nature does rather than trying to fight against nature and try to strong arm nature, if you get it right, then not so much you, it's more so of an, your understanding and your acceptance of what's going on and simply just manipulating nature as nature does in a way that benefits you and nature instead of trying to strong arm and destroy nature to your benefit, things, the things, the things end up actually like really amazing. Um, modern gardening often involves weeding, turning the soil, fertilization, and pest control, but permaculture is the practice of growing garden with the least amount of intervention possible, relying on companion planting native insects and adding cover crops to control weeds. Okay, again, like I said, this is just, this is just the planting aspect this is not like the cultural impact and the people community impact and like the spiritual impact this this is very exclusionary there's there's a lot more to it so when they just give it this bullshit explanation this this is what most people think of when they this is what when i first started getting into permaculture this is what i was thinking okay but like i said we'll get into that other stuff another time um, in a permaculture food forest, fruit trees are combined with other plants to produce as much food as possible in a small space. It's not only kid and pet safe, but offers, also offers increased yield and low maintenance, making it a great choice if you're growing your own food. Here's how to get started if you want to try your hand at growing your own food forest. Food forests aren't anything new. Duh. Go into the forest that's actually untouched by humans, and you'll find that out real quick. The idea of a food forest is new to many of us, but it's actually an ancient way of growing food, dating back to at least 2,000 years. 2,000 years? Bitch, if you, just leave, if you just leave nature alone, you find food forests everywhere. But okay, what's cool? Um, while European colonialists often didn't recognize that permaculture food forests planted by indigenous people in Asia, Africa, and America is nomadic and semi-nomadic, People have been cultivating crops to use for food and medicine for thousands of years. Again, if you leave nature alone, these things happen in nature. For example, a little bird eats a berry. The bird flies to somewhere else and shits out that berry seed. And then a tree that grows fruit starts growing there and then produces food. Animals make these things happen whether you like it or not, or you have things like dandelions where the seeds blow in a wind. They, they blow to somewhere else and then they start growing there. Like nature has incredible means of feeding and creating food forests in amongst itself. When you have indigenous groups and stuff that, you know, get involved and use nature to create a little bit more, slightly more structured. I wouldn't say entirely structured, but slightly more structured than the way nature would have it, maybe a tiny bit more diverse than the way nature would have it, but they still utilize the processes of nature in order to make it happen. They don't, you know, have an entire monocrop field of uh, trees for miles. You have a little bit here, you have a little bit there. You, you do it like nature does. That's all it is. But anyway, um, rather than strict rows and bare soil between plants, the features of a food forest are layered looking to an un initiated observer like a naturally occurring feature in a forest. So it wasn't until the 1970s that the idea became popularized as a form of gardening for the urban and suburban gardener. 
I find it funny that you didn't even bother to mention Bill Molson. There's some germ journalism right there. Starting a permaculture food forest requires enough space for at least a few trees and shrubs. So if you can plant your food forest in tall to start, for maximum sun exposure, plant your tallest trees first. From south to north in the northern hemisphere and north to south in the southern hemisphere. You must start with nut trees and fruit trees like pear, cherry, and apples, and shrubs like blueberries, raspberries, hazelnuts, and rosemary, and herbs like oregano, thyme, and sage, and finally use a cover crop that will attract pollinators and add nutrients like clover, vetch, bush, beans, or other nitrogen-fixing plants. Add some pest control plants. Adding some natural pest deterrents can help your emerging food forest thrive. Marigold, lavender, onions, garlic, and petunias help prevent aphids, daffodils, geraniums, and Hyacinths will help discourage squirrel and rabbit raiders. Well, there's no way to keep interlopers from foraging in your food forest, creating a healthy diversity will make your plants more resilient, even if some animals or insect friends stop by for a nibble. So true. So true. You're, if, if, if you care about nature, and like there have been, I have heard stories, I have heard stories of people utilizing manifestation in order to keep critters out of their growing spaces. I can't remember where I heard this story, but I heard this one, somebody tell me the story about, was it read it in the book? I can't remember where I, I heard it. I remember there was a story that somebody had told that somebody was getting these little bugs in their garden over and over and over, and then they manifested for these little bugs to just you know, go somewhere else. Like, not to, like, you know, it wasn't mean. It wasn't, like, fuck off. Like, you know, it wasn't, like, any of that kind of stuff. But it was just manifestations that these little bugs would just go somewhere else. And after, like, a week or two, they did. But then you also have means of, like, engage, like putting other, you know, like, you, you don't want to, you don't want to monocrop it. That's a lot of the issues that we tend to have is when you have everything in one spot which makes it easier, no doubt. But when you have things in one spot, especially these, when we're looking into things like agriculture and these giant fields and everything, where everything is one kind of crop, it makes it a whole lot easier for critters to come in and dominate, just like a parasite. You know, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and call them parasites because, like, really, truly, honestly, they're just trying to eat like we are. You know, if this is all about survival of the fittest, everything that is consuming is trying to do it in order to sustain life. Everything that stops consuming, unless they are meant to be that way, anything that stops consuming will essentially, eventually, cease to have life. When you really think about it, it's really interesting to think about it that way. But um, and it's kind of cruel, to be honest, that you need to consume in order to be able to sustain life. And then once that consuming stops, then you give life to really to other things that consume. Wild, really, isn't it? Um, but to have things kind of dispersed and diversified makes it a whole lot come in and cause problems. Because there's a whole lot of other things, like, um, for example... If you have, what is it, um, little jumping beetles? I can't remember. Um, or is it the butterflies? 
pretty sure it's the butterflies. If you've got like your broccoli and cauliflower mixed in with other kinds of plants, it, it disorients the butterflies a little bit and makes them less likely to land on your plants and start laying little caterpillar eggs. Because it's not, obviously it's not going to fix the whole issue because like butterflies are also smart, but it, it deters them a little bit more. If you kind of hide them amongst other taller and shorter plants kind of things, especially amongst like lettuce and corn and things, you hide them among there and uh, they, they're a little less, they're a little more deterred. You won't get as many. You'll still get them, but you won't get as many. Um, diversify your plants. The trick for your plants should form a diverse ecosystem rather than creating a monoculture environment that needs a lot of fertilizer, weeding, and pest control. Since many plants are perennials, they won't need to be replanted every year to grow food. In using a variety of plants help for a healthier soil and typical garden soil. Having cover crops also allows the soil to hold on to more moisture even in hot weather. All of these factors mean less water, pesticides, and work while producing more food than a more contemporary garden. Um, yeah, there's a lot of plants that could be um, perennials rather than annuals. Unfortunately, the farther north you get, the more perennials that would be generally perennials in like tropical climates, warmer climates, tend to turn into annuals here, um, which is unfortunate. But guess what? That's what happens when you live in more arid climates, you know, prairie climates, mountainous climates. It's just the way it is. Um, well, more so like those climates more up north than, or really, really far down south versus um, in the middle of the equator there. Cause you have a lot of those mountains and things and like India and stuff, like the places, they're just beautiful and they don't get snow like we do here. It's crazy. Um, but, you know, when you've only got 90 days of growing season, you want to try and get as many um, perennials that grow and you know will thrive in the area. Um, keep the plants as natural as possible to the localized areas because, number one, um, you don't want to create any invasive weeds if it's a possibility. Um, I know we could sit there and argue about the whole reason of evolution. We're all about evolution and survival of the fittest happens when you have something that moves into an area that is either ill-adapted or more adapted for that area, and they kind of come in and mess a bunch of things up. And then the local plants and animals either have to adapt to the new conditions and the new invaders, or they get phased out. Um, and that's just what happens in nature, which it always makes me chuckle when we talk about sustainability and we don't want invasive species and blah, blah, blah. But how do you think these species happen? How do you think they happen? How do you think that these species that were in their area that had competition got to have competition? Because they moved in, they weren't competitive or they were more than competitive, and then something else evolved to become competitive against the thing that was now the super thing. Like, how do you think we evolved? Duh, but, you know, it's fine. You know, go ahead and talk to any about that, and feel free to have an argument about those kinds of things. I'm not saying that we need to start bringing in new species all over the place and, like, royally screwing things up. That's definitely not what I'm saying. Um, 
because when you do do that, there is a lot of imbalance that is created and you do run the risk of pushing certain things to extinction. And I mean, granted, it's going to happen regardless when you have shifts in um, the climate and things anyway, when you have things like full shifts and, you know, these mass extinctions that have been happening over however every like 100,000 years or something like that, they, they happen and it sucks. And, like, you know, I, I hate to talk about that because humans might even be on that list, too. You know, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, we're, we're perfect and we're going to survive or that we need to die or anything like, like, just calm down, calm down. I'm not saying that we need, <laughs> I'm not saying that those things to happen. I'm saying that is the consequence of having a world in which there is growth and decline and growth and decline and that circle of life that everything comes in circles from the smallest amoeba to the entire way, the entire like electromagnitude of the planet and the way that the climate happens. It's just like, you know, the, the winter and summer seasons, there is that shift, that rhythm of the world that happens that like, you know, as much as we would love to be able to sustain and control what, for whatever reason, that's not the way our current reality works. That it doesn't mean that it can't be shifted or, you know, complemented. Again, if we start working with nature and start to understand her processes, we may be able to manipulate them in certain ways, um, both healthily and unhealthily. I mean, you look at the government right now doing cloud seeding and how they're doing weather manipulation through, um, FEMA and those kinds of things. I mean, cloud seeding alone, um, in Alberta, they've already announced quite a few times that they've been doing cloud seeding over the last like 20, 30 years. Russia does it. it it's not un like when you say like, for all the conspiracy theorists that are out there, um, now I'm not saying that to knock you guys. I'm one of those too. Uh, what I mean to say, however, is if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, conspiracy theorists, no, 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 calm down, calm down. Um, this is the chemtrails that we keep talking about with them blocking out the sun and things like that. It's not chemtrails, it's cloud seeding. When you Google the term cloud seeding, because this is the mind games that the people at the top like to play. They like to let you create your own term and then use propaganda to essentially slander you and make you look freaking stupid and convince everybody else you're stupid, even though you're entirely correct, or at least for the most part correct, you may not be entirely, but for the most part, you're, you're pretty dead on. And then they take and twist that and make and manipulate everybody to make you look stupid, but then they'll go ahead and use a different term describing the exact same damn thing, but because it's a different term, it makes more sense. So if you're looking into these kinds of things and you're like, oh, chemtrails, 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 Google cloud seeding. Just go to Google right now and Google cloud seeding. Google, because it was a couple year or two ago that in Dubai, they were experimenting with using drones to do cloud seeding because here's the issue with things that are happening in places like Dubai. Because they have such large areas of no trees, no animals, no permaculture, no nothing. It's just buildings and buildings and humans and buildings and they create these city forests of concrete that these city forests of concrete have actually created their own microclimate you can google this too that 
cities that are large enough quite often i was watching a video and i actually googled it because somebody was talking about that why why don't cities often get things like tornadoes like the big ones will get like hurricanes you know that are close to the coast but a lot of these places these cities won't get tornadoes and the reason why is because these big people from these big people forests i like to call them people farms but these big people forests of concrete they actually have a couple degrees warmer temperature because of the furnaces and the lights and the bodies and things like that that when you have the cold and the hot it doesn't become as severe when it comes to um the cities and then so when you have a tornado it'll usually miss the city to keep following the natural the natural um tornado patterns it's really freaking neat i'm doing a bad job butchering explaining it but if, if you look it up it's actually really really interesting phenomenally interesting but here's the problem with places like dubai because they have created such a large people farm of concrete and then in the surrounding local areas they have agriculture in which they've cut down all the fucking trees and they don't have no green spaces they they'll have fucking miles and miles and miles and miles and miles no green naturally you've messed with the natural processes of having areas where the water turns into condensation and then goes up in the clouds and then it rains and like this is just basic like you know like kindergarten like grade 2 3 um science that when you have water in the ground there's condensation it goes up it makes clouds it rains and you have that process i mean i know there's a lot like oh lakes help that and like there's the water that comes from the ocean blah 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 but like trees green spaces trees also breathe off water And when you've got these all these forests that are soaking up all of this water from the ground and then breathing this water into the air essentially and then it also helps create crops. This is why the rainforest and stuff rain all the time because the trees create rain. It's not just the water from the rivers and the lakes, the trees help create rain. When you cut down all the trees, well now you just have the lakes and the rivers and when then you have people using all the water and draining the lakes and the rivers you now have nothing and then you have desertification so they had an experiment they were doing an experiment with dubai to bring in drones to essentially use like their own homemade lightning bolts to create clouds and then use their own homemade lightning bolts to zap these clouds so that it would rain over dubai On one hand, I am entirely infatuated and my jaw hits the floor over how incredible that kind of a technology is and how interesting and phenomenally adept humans are at creating technology to fix the problem. But at the same time, my jaw also hits the floor because This would be a non-issue if you would do something as simple as planting some fucking trees in your backyard, homie. If when you do agriculture instead of cutting down all of the trees to get an extra $5 of grain, leave the trees along the ditches or have stretches of trees and some wild plants. You know, it's like they don't necessarily have to be all 
varied. Like you don't want thistles and things in your in your your um, fields. Like trust me, thistles suck, man. Things like thistles and kochia. Talk to any farmer around these areas. And thistles and kochia, they're just gonna like you. You just you. <laughs> they're beautiful plants. Um, outside of their annoyingness and how hard they are to get rid of, things like burdock and stuff, incredibly difficult to get rid of, very frustrating. But that amongst themselves, like they're just. You know, in terms of just the beauty of nature or even medicinal, because things like a Canadian thistle, you can eat it. The whole part of the plant. You can eat flowers. You can eat the leaves. They're very, very pokey, though, so I suggest cutting off the pokies. You can eat the roots. The roots actually taste a lot like asparagus. And I would strongly suggest that when you're eating the roots, you eat the younger roots over the older roots. The older roots, like if you're in a pinch and you need something to eat and you have an older root, definitely fucking, I would throw that in the oven, though, for a little while longer than like the younger shoots because the younger shoots are like easy to chew. The older ones get very roasty. They get very difficult to chew. So, I mean, if you're starving, definitely eat them. But if you can choose the younger roots for like, you know, easier to eat steak, I would choose the younger roots. Um, but anyway, back to this. Ah, oh, do, 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 do. Food forests are also beautiful. Less pesticides in a, and a rotation of flowering plants means more pollinators than a typical vegetable patch, patch would bring. So you can enjoy more species of bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. Increasing your local biodiversity isn't just good for food production. It makes a beautiful garden view as well. So that's a cute little article. Um, do, do, do. Okay, let's pick a different article. And that one, again, was from lifehacker.com, how to grow a permaculture food forest in your yard. Mm-hmm. This one looks interesting. Actually, this is the one that I thought that you guys might find really, really interesting. I know there's a lot of people out there that smoke cannabis, but here we go. Here's a really interesting one. Cannabis and tech today. Um, this is from cannabistechtoday.com. Permaculture offers a new approach to sustainable cannabis cultivation. Oh, would you look at that? Cannabis's impact on the environment has been widely reported. Its impact on wildlife and local water systems and the immense amounts of agricultural waste it produces, just as a few of the issues currently haunting commercial cultivators. Well, I find that funny because anybody that's grown freaking cannabis in their closet or grow it outside in their backyard don't seem to have that issue. But, you know, whatever. Um... Eco-conscious cannabis farmers are working on incorporating more sustainable farming practices like rainwater collection and composting into their production. Yet few have considered tackling these issues from a macro perspective, which works towards truly sustainable commercial cultivation within a broader biodiverse ecosystem. Well, it's both macro and micro, so okay. But either way, I get you. Permaculture, a decades-old ideology, tri-centuries, but okay. Um, addresses cannabis environmental issue head on, but interestingly, it's never been applied to a scale, upscale to commercial cannabis cultivation. Well, geez, that's because when you had the fucking cops kicking your door in because you're smoking a fucking fat one while you're, you're having a cup of coffee on a Saturday afternoon, it's no wonder. I mean, honestly, I would even say they probably, prior to the illegalization of cannabis in North America, because of marijuana, you don't want to inject the marijuana. 
you know, they've made it illegal because they realize it's medicinal properties. They didn't make it illegal because, you know, and I know they did it because, you know, there was racism involved and other, other stupid shit. They didn't do it because they just did it. They did it because they saw the potential health effects coming from it, and they had to figure out a way to tax and regulate it. They had to figure out a way to take control of it in order to be able to continue to let people use it. I mean, do you ever wonder why, when you actually listen to people who actually know something about cannabis, that when it comes to the THC levels, of cannabis, it's not the CBD that deals with cancer. It's the THC and the combination of these things. But yet, the cannabis shops here in Canada, they don't process with high enough levels of THC in order to actually help your cancer. They cap it. Just like they did with the apricot seeds, what, two years ago now? It was like 2020, like summer 2020. I think it was, when they regulated the sale of apricot seeds because, in their words, the cyanide levels in the bitter apricot seeds were too high, and they need to protect the public from the cyanide in these bitter apricot seeds. Meanwhile, your vitamin B12 is literally called cyanobalamin. I think is that what it's called? Hold on. Let me just Google so I don't butcher this. Let me see. Cyano. Come on. Cyanocobalamin. Cyanocobalamin is a medication used to manage and treat vitamin 12 B deficiency. Vitamin 12 B12 deficiency. Vitamin B12. There we go. Like, you can literally buy cyanocobalamin. It's literally in the frickin' name. If that isn't telling that you can buy a cyanide vitamin to improve your health, but you can't go down to a health food store and buy apricot kernels because that's not safe for you because some dummy somewhere who couldn't Google went and bought a whole freaking bag of them and decided to eat them all in one sitting. And by the way, you shouldn't be doing that with walnuts or peanuts or anything else either. Especially not things like Brunel's Brazil nuts. You sit down and you eat a whole bag of Brazil nuts like you're off to the hospital, motherfucker. Like, use your head. Moderation, bro. Anyway, there's my rant. But that's what they did with the apricot seeds here in Canada. They regulated them to protect your ass from getting church from cancer. Essentially, that's what they did. And right around that time, they also started bringing in their freaking mRNA junk to start turning everybody in a bunch of mindless heart freaking attack zombies. And anybody that's listening, if you got your shots, I am so sorry. I'm not even going to lie. I am so, so sorry that the alternative community could not get its shit together enough That anybody with a brain on their shoulders to know that that entire thing was such a fucking bad idea, it wasn't even funny, and that they were trying to literally cull you. I am 
so sorry that the alternative community spends more time trying to fight and tear each other down and call each other stupid, that they could not get their shit together enough to protect you like they should have. I mean, granted, you know, you should be able to protect yourself. I'm going to give them that. This is everybody's individual choice, and you have the right to informed consent, but you are not given informed consent. And the alternative people who knew this shit, who were trying to get the word out there, they are so fucked up that they, they can't work together to get the word out in a constructive and quick way. They spend too much time fighting amongst themselves, and they failed, you guys. They did the best they could, given the circumstances, but in the end, it wasn't good enough, and they failed hardcore. This entire situation is such a mess for everybody, and it is so disappointing. But anyway, back to the THC. They lower the THC levels so that you can't actually get cured from cancer. Okay. Uh, now the founders of okay. Uh, now the founders of a Connecticut hemp farm have teamed up with a climate scientist to put permaculture's fundamental principles into practice within the commercial sector. Ah, permaculture isn't just a cultivation method; it's a total design system. Ross Mars, he just died. Ross Mars just died. Oh, that's so disappointing. All the good ones are dying, man. I really hope, I really hope that people start pulling their ad, their heads out of their ass and stop with the emotional shit, start healing themselves and actually start getting curious and creative and want to start actually working with each other so that we can bring the education that these people brought mainstream. They fought so hard to bring mainstream. Disappointing. Damn it. A permaculture teacher, designer, and author explained permaculture designs endeavor to integrate all components of the ecosystem in a holistic approach to sustainable living and practice. It started as a theory about permanent agriculture, but since the 1970s, permaculture has grown to encompass community layout, water use, uh, architecture, technology, biodiversity, and so much more. See, I like this article so much better than the other one. The other one was some just chat GPT bullshit. This one is actually, like, thought through. I like it. The specific strategies vary widely from one project to the next. For example, using the natural landscape to reduce wildlife, wildfire risk, harvesting rainwater for use during dry months, or utilizing no-till agriculture to build rich living soil. But it's never just a single tactic. Permaculture weaves a dozen or so more ideas into a comprehensive ecosystem design. I really like this article. This is a lot better than the last trash we read. Not that the article was bad, but it's just this one is a lot more comprehensive as well. On a theoretical level, there has always been an overlap between cannabis, hippie culture, or cultivator roots, and the permaculture movement. Yet, despite the number of cannabis brands marketing themselves as eco-friendly, none have directly applied the principles of permaculture. Funny because we haven't really had cannabis legal for that long 
on a commercial way without, you know, getting all the way to harvest and then having these fucking cops kick in your door, take everything, throw you in jail for a little bit, and then turn around and sell it without, you know, that going public, fucking give it to a bunch of drug dealers and shit who go sell it on the streets, and then they go bust everybody who's freaking buying it and throw them in jail too. Talk about a nice freaking racket for a slavery system, asshole. Um, Sean McGill, industrial health consultant and CBG Guru's co-founder, seeks to change this. McGill recently partnered with Eliza Lewis, a climate scientist, permaculture expert, and founder of New Climate Culture, to actively incorporate fundamentals of permaculture design into his USDA certified organic hemp farm based in Harwington, Connecticut. Interesting. Megill and his co-founder, Jacob Honing, are some of the first to apply these sustainable methods to commercial hemp production. And the first to partner with climate scientists to make their farm more resilient and biodiverse. Neat. like that. What does this look like in practice? The CBG's Guru's Farm started as as fallow grassland. Although a conventional farmer would till up the soil and make way for new crops, Megal and Honig instead chose to lay down cardboard and wood chips to avoid the destruction of the soil-sensitive microbes. Yes! I love that. I love that so much. In fact, actually, going off of my own stuff here, that's actually what I wanted to start doing here next year. And you know what? I think I'm going to document it. I think I'm going to throw it up in a blog because I was even possibly thinking, um, because I just picked up a bunch of tomato cages. And I know, like, some people use tomato cages and some people use, like, steaks and some people use, like, strings on, you know, strings on big bars and things like that. I picked up this because that was available to me. Um, so that's what I'm going to use. But I was even thinking, um, actually, having studied some fairly, like, I just read another book about no-till gardening. And I've tried to do the no-till way, um, but you have to lay down the cardboard. You've got to lay down the cardboard. Because if you just do wood chips to start, um, depending on what kind of um, weeds you have in the area, and I'm not saying weeds because, oh, well, you know, why do you face weeds when it comes to, you know, all these specific spaces and then, you know, all these beautiful natural herbal, you know, holistic plants and things like that, you know, these, these little green people, when you talk about them otherwise, it's like, well, I just say weeds just because they're in a certain area that I don't want them to be in. Um, so you lay down the cardboard, make sure you take the tape off of it and stuff, but lay it down. Um, and depending on what you got going on, cause I got a lot of Canadian thistle around here. And let me tell you when Canadian thistle, like you, everybody jokes about dandelions growing in the crack of the sidewalk and thriving, even though like you, 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 you're pampering your iris and things like that in, in the most beautiful, perfect pH highly fertilized, everything is perfect, and they still die on you kind of plant, where dandelions just show up and rock, rock your crap. Um, thistles, they're the same thing, but on steroids. Those guys can grow absolutely everywhere, and they grow really tall. They grow as tall as me. Guys, I'm like, like I'm 5'5". Five five? I think I'm 5'5". Five five. I'm 5'4", five 5'5". Five five. I can't remember. Everybody that measures me says something different. So somewhere around 5'4", five 5'5". Five five five. And those freaking thistles grow as tall as I do, and they're huge, and they are a total pain in the ass to try and dig out because thistle roots, they are a perennial, and that's all you need to do is leave a centimeter of that root in the ground, and it will regrow. And they are built in a way that if you try and pull them out, 
the end will always break off on you. Guaranteed, without fail, and good luck trying to dig them out. The small ones, yeah, sure, but the big ones, the big ones, when they start getting like, you know, three feet tall, five feet tall, like that's, I think that's about as tall as they grow, it's about five feet. But it's like when they start getting that big, you ain't getting that root out. Mm, Lord help you. Even if it just rained and everything is slippery wet mud and you have the easiest time hulking those things out, it's still going to break off and it's going to regrow. <laughs> Lay that cardboard down. And then I've got a bunch of old um, grass bales and stuff that I've got I'm going to use. Um, to put on top as well as a uh, straw bale just because uh, a mix of two would be nice because the, the, the grass bale breaks down and creates nitrogen a lot faster than the straw bale. The straw bale ties up a lot of the nitrogen. So, I mean, if you're going to use like goat shit straw or something like that, you know, make sure it's been sitting like the goats and the cattle and stuff, make sure it's been sitting for a year. But I find you can kind of, you, you should let chicken shit straw. Um it for a year two but I find it's as long as it's not too too saturated if it's still got some straw bale in it then it's I I haven't really had a problem with the plants burning I've had more of a problem with the plants not having a nice enough nitrogen when I lay down straw than I do with them burning but there's always that potential so general rule of thumb is let it sit for a season and then use it the next year's compost or whatever because the straw bale after a year it's still not going to decompose all the way but you know um i plan on doing this with my tomatoes next year oh geez it's been like an hour already okay we're going to take a quickie break and when we come back we will keep talking permaculture of all the grounding studies the one that really got our attention is called electric grounding improves bagel tone in preterm infants in the study, 26 premature babies in an NICU were connected to grounding wires. The heart rates of the grounded infants stabilized. And their vagal tone, a critical measure of infant health, increased by 67% with grounding. The information is provided for general informational purposes only. The contents are not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ground Therapy Incorporated makes no representations about the efficiency, appropriateness, or suitability of any specific tests, procedures, treatments, services, opinions, healthcare providers, or other information that may be contained in or available through the information provided. Have you looked at the price of Bitcoin lately? Cryptocurrencies are the hottest financial investment right now. Well, what if you can get free Bitcoin fractions by having an app on your phone or PC? Introducing Lolly, a website that rewards you with free Bitcoin pieces with your online purchases. You purchase from one of thousands of companies like Chewy, Old Navy, Groupon, and others. You get a percent of your purchase back in Bitcoin. Use my link on freedomizerradio.live or find me on Facebook for your special link to get started. Lolly, earn free Bitcoin while you shop. Hello, everyone. I want to introduce you to our friends at Marty.com. At Marty, you can stock up on all your pantry items and other household items for way, way cheaper than traditional grocery stores. I like that most of the items are organic. Also, I really dig their one-cent deal of the day. It changes every single day. 
I recently snagged a 10-ounce bag of dog treats for Chewbacca for a penny. Normally, they sell on their site for $7.99. With the upcoming food shortages, this is my favorite place to stock up on canned goods. If you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones, you need to get with Marty.com. M-A-R-T-I-E.com. Look for our link on our FreedomizerRadio.com website and get a $10 free just because I told you to go there. Marty.com. Great deals, good feels. Okay, we are back. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as Against the Green. And prior to the break, we are talking permaculture today. We read an article from Life Hacker, I think it was. And we are currently reading an article um, about utilizing permaculture techniques um, from CannaTechToday.com. Um, the article in question is called uh, Cannabis and Tech Today. And I'm just kind of reading and ranting at the, at the same time. Um, okay. So anyway, we had left off that you're going to want to lay down cardboard and wood chips instead of killing the soil to avoid destruction of the soil-sensitive microbiome. Within a year, these layers had, had broken down, decomposed, decomposing into a rich subterranean ecosystem, creating beautiful nutrient-dense soil ready for the first round of plants. They've since continued to enrich the soil through inoculation and beneficial fungi, which they hope to offer as a secondary commercial crop. During the growing season, they keep the field well mulched and cover crops with daikon, radish, peas, and clover. And, oh, my screen just started turning yellow. Hold on. <laughs> I, got the, I got the nice screen on here. There we go. Not that I mind. It's just at 9 o'clock. It starts switching it ever so slowly, and it trips me out. Um, okay. During the growing season, they keep the field well mulched and cover cropped with daikon reddish, daikon, D-A-I-K-O-N, right? Radish, peas and clover. Intercropping continues soil regeneration, but also reduces water evaporation. Magill directly uh, attributes this practice to survival during the drought last summer. They irrigated less than 20 times throughout the growing season, the vast majority of which was rain from rainwater collection. Again, permaculture isn't just mulching or intercropping, it's a holistic system design. Beneficial fungi, rainwater collection, and other actions mentioned represent the tip of the iceberg for how CBD or CBG gurus are working this approach into their commercial hemp farm. So here's the big problem when you start killing the soil. It makes it very easy to plant your new seeds and things. And ideally, that's what you want, is you want, you know, a new area that is free of other plants and things, and you put your seeds in. And then for a little while, they grow really well. Um, but over time, they don't grow as well. Um, you also have um, soil erosion. And depending on the quality of your soil, you lose a lot of your topsoil. And if you are not spending adequate amount of time trying to replenish it by doing things like summer follow, which once upon a time, years ago, farmers would do that. They would, they would have four quarters. They would have two growing crops, one with some form of animal, generally cattle. Um, and then they would have one that would just summer follow. And then they would crop rotate 
So you would have one quarter of land that would be two seasons of uh, whatever crop, wheat, you know, blah, blah, blah. Generally, they would have like, you know, one crop and then a different crop next year or whatever, just to keep the variety going. So then you have the same crop over and over and over again. Um, you also have problems with pests coming in that um, lay their eggs and things in the soil. So then when you do that crop next year, those pests hatch and they become like a long-term problem. Um, wheat midge is one of them. I'm pretty sure it's called wheat midge. Wheat midge. Um, they, they lay their eggs in the soil, and once you've got them, unless you've got like a, a wheat midge strain, is it wheat? Hold on, let me see. Wheat midge. There we go. Yeah, that's right. Wheat midge. Um, unless you've got like wheat midge specific strain, of wheat that you're growing, you're going to have to plant a different crop. And they stay in the soil for years, years. So once they're there, like, if you don't heavily chemical them for, like, years to come, you're, they're, they're there to stay, and they cause a lot of problems. So you would plant one crop, and the next year you would plant a different kind of crop because that's another thing is different kinds of plants use different levels of nutrients out of the ground. So when you have the same kind of plant over and over and over again in the same area without supplementing any other kind of plant, there's no diversification that they're not giving back and they're just taking the same levels over and over and then it becomes depleted. Whereas you have things, if you look at like a natural area, you won't just find a single kind of plant for as far as the eye can see. You will find if you actually like really look, even if it's just grass, even if you look and it's just grass, if you actually like walk around and pay attention, you will find little flowers of different kinds, little bushes, or you know these all the these the, every like few feet, you're gonna find something different. It might not be a whole patch of it. Sometimes you'll find whole patches of it, and sometimes you won't. But you're gonna find different kinds of flowers every few feet. Nature does not monocrop. It never does. It might have a majority of a certain kind in an area, but they're never going to be just strictly one that kind of plant. <clears throat> so on top of that, um, you so you do the, like the two crops of plants, and then you would throw, you know, you you would throw um, some cattle on there. Oh no, you would. I can't remember. Either you would summer pull it, or you would throw the cattle on there. I think you would throw. Pretty sure you throw the cattle on there and you let the cattle graze it, and then they're pooping. Yeah, you throw the cattle on because when they're pooping, it's going to take a year for that poop to turn into fertilizer because otherwise it burns the ground. You can't just, you know. So then they, they let it sit for a year, and then they just summer follow it, and then they till it again and work it again. And that's another thing with tilling is when you have things like earthworms, which you have in um, even – Traditional agriculture has more earthworms than a lot of the commercial when they're spraying ammonia and all those kinds of things onto um, the soil to kill the earthworms. Earthworms are your best friend because they take all of the yucky as well as all the little bugs. They turn all of the plant matter into soil matter 
so that the plants can take up these nutrients. They turn the micro into ma- the, no, they turn the macro, the, the 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 nonsense into macronutrients, and then like the little like amoebas and like all the little bacteria and things, they turn that stuff into the micronutrients, which then the plants can take up, which make you healthy. Um, this is why we're starting to have issues with people eating healthy but still experiencing health problems. Well, yeah, your food is shit because of the monocropping practices. Um, and that's another thing we'll get into another day. Um, regardless, earthworms also create a bunch of little, like when the soil gets a little more compacted, earthworms also create a bunch of little tunnels. And outside of the roots holding water in the soil, those little those little tunnels also hold water in the soil too. It's like little bitty rivers, little teeny tiny little rivers all over the place under the soil that hold that water for an extended period of time, whereas if that soil is tilled and it doesn't have those little bitty, like millions and billions of teeny tiny rivers, the water just goes straight down or it just gets even worse, it gets evaporated right away. So yeah, it waters it, but then as soon as the sun comes out, it's gone right away. And then depending on the growing season or, you know, the year where you might not get rain for a while, then it just dries everything up and kills everything. I mean, southern Saskatchewan, southern Alberta, you know, these these areas were struggling big time with, like, grasshoppers this year, drought and grasshoppers. They had a massive amount of drought, and whatever plants they did have, the grasshoppers came in and destroyed it all because the grasshoppers have no competition. They, they, They come and go, like, you know, just like all animals and bugs and everything, they have cycles where there's more of them. But here's the thing. When you've got more bugs, you know, it creates abundance for animals that eat those bugs. But when you don't have a whole lot of animals that eat those bugs, because you don't have a lot of forest or area or grassland or whatever it is that these animals need to be able to survive, you've got nothing eating them. And, like, yeah, then, like, you know, they do start to catch up a little bit, but by that time they catch up, they're all starving already because you went and killed all the damn bugs again. So then you have all these problem critters that are starting to create issues, like coyotes and things, because, oh, it was abundance, you know, for a couple years. With these bugs, you know, running around destroying everything. So then they have more more baby critters, and then the baby critters don't have nothing to eat. It's it's an entire mess, which is really rather unfortunate. Um. But that, that's generally the farming process of what happens when it comes to the traditional farming. Um, we don't really have that anymore. Unfortunately, we have constant tilling, constant reusing. Like, they try to do a lot less tilling now than they used to back in the dirty 30s. Like, they've changed a lot of the farming processes and stuff now in terms of tilling. Um, but overall, not as much has changed as it should, in my opinion. which is unfortunate because it's just holding on to to tradition and if people would take initiative to try something different, even with small areas, even with small areas, if you don't want to do it with the whole thing, at least try with a small area and see how that goes and then, you know, experiment, work with it. But instead, they'd rather just cut down trees and say, you know, make an extra $30 in freaking wheat, but that's okay, whatever. Stupid, but (laughs) it's, it's, it works to line your pockets in the short run. It does not work to line your pockets in the long run because you're destroying the environment and it's eventually going to bite you in the ass. You're cutting out, you're poisoning your own fucking body. You're poisoning your own foot, forgetting that your foot is attached to your whole damn body. But that's okay. 
Um, let's scroll down. This approach to farming is not formulaic, as it gives cultivators the space to experiment to see what approach, or sorry, what works and what doesn't for the region, climate, and crop. Farmers are no longer consumers of commercial inputs, example, uh, nutrients, water technologies. Instead, permaculturists strive to reduce, regenerate, reuse in the matter that works within their local system. Megill is the first to call his farm a big experiment. The first year was a steep learning curve, yet despite this, this, the challenges, their inaugural season gave them data to grow better into the second. For instance, in the second year, Magel knew the beetles are coming in and July, June and July, and then the caterpillars are coming at the end of July and August. This knowledge allowed them to strategize, prepare, and grow better hemp. In another experiment, they trialed 18 different cultivars last year. It was partly to determine which provided the best resistance to the common pest in the area and mold. As Miguel explained, a particular variety may work really well in California where the summers are a bit longer and it's really dry. But here in the East Coast, in my system where it's humid all the time, I need something that's going to be really resilient. As they watch the fall fog roll in, this trial helps CVG gurus settle on strains that have some resilience to moisture and didn't rapidly mold out, provided by Lewis CBG gurus plan to continue their ongoing sustainable experimentation. This year's projects include ramping up rainwater collection and intercropping with commercially valuable species. See, see when we were talking about the wheat midge, see, see? Magdal and Lewis are a perfect example of permaculture's collaborative nature. Lewis explains farmers shouldn't just be collaborative as hemp and cannabis. Oh, farmers shouldn't just be more collaborative as hemp and cannabis farmers. Farmers should be more collaborative as farmers. Preach, preach. I really, really, truly wish that, like, everybody could say it like this. Like, obviously, these people care about what they do enough that they do these kinds of things because they enjoy it. Like, even the farmers, I, I tend to get really upset in the farmers groups when these people say, you know, like, oh, the commoners, like, you know, they just, they just, you know, they're, they're bitching and whining, but if it wasn't for us, you know, we, we did, wouldn't have any food to eat. And like, I'm not going to lie with them. They're, they, they are, <laughs> for the most part, they are correct. The average Joe cannot grow a carrot. And it's a real damn shame watching the amount of these fucking excuses these people will make so that they do not have to grow a carrot. So mind baffling to me. Because like, you know, I can understand the challenges that come with growing food, particularly for first-timers. It can be incredibly discouraging if you do all the things and things just don't go your way, or you've got like four or five little kids, or you're living in an apartment, or you've got a cat, or like, you know, I think like there's all these challenges that present themselves. But let me tell you when there is a will, there is a way, and if you actually want to do it, and you actually want to make it happen, and, like, especially if you've got kids, if you get your kids involved, get them involved, you are furthering their education and their connection with nature, and you're not setting them up for failure. Like, I, I 
don't mean to be that guy, but like when they don't even know what their vegetables are when they go to school, you're you're setting them up for failure, setting them up to be government slaves. You're putting them in the optimal position that they are useless people that can do nothing on their own. And then when an abuser comes along because they have no life skills, they've got no life knowledge, absolutely nothing. When an abuser comes along, you know, the government, we like to talk about narcissistic relationships, which is what the government has with you. When they come along and they decide to take everything from you unless you do what they want, you've got no other options because you suck and you can do nothing else. Like, this is a big shout-out to all the parents out there. Like, I don't mean that, like, everybody parents differently. Um, Everybody has, you know, their things. A lot of people have opportunities that don't others don't have. Okay, like, I'm not – I can recognize the red tape nonsense that has been put in place, which makes it difficult for some and less difficult for others. We're not going to pretend that there is, like, there's total equality and that everybody has the same opportunities because, let's face it, you know, it's more of an equity thing, the same possibility to have opportunities, but, like, some people need to struggle a lot more to get there than others. Some people have that golden spoon in their mouth, but if you really, really want it, if you really, really want it, you can make it happen. And you can put the bullshit excuses away because I don't want to hear them, um, if you really want it, you can definitely make promises. I promise you, there are people who have clawed their ways out of, like, what is literally hell to make amazing things happen, amazing things happen. And, you know, those are the people we tend to put on pedestals because, like, oh, look, when they were seven years old, a tornado came through and, like, completely obliterated their home. And then... I mean, this is an extreme example. And then they were living on the streets until they were 13, and then they were hustling in a gang. And then when they turned, like, you know, this age, then they came to, you know, they decided that what they were doing was wrong, and then they went to university while they were, you know, living in uh, under a rock by the river, and then they made something to themselves. You know, those are the kind of people that were like, holy crap, they had, like, everything that was against them and they still pulled through and they still made it happen. And those people will sit there and say, Hey man, like I know life is tough, but like when there's a will, there's a way. And when you manifest things, they will happen. And that's exactly what happened. But like you have some, you have these, these people that are telling these stories. And of course you're going to have the negative average Joe. That's going to be like, you know, shut up, shut up, please just don't even go there. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. We've already established that there are certain barriers that limit some people over others. But guess what? When action is created, things manifest. And that it just happens. But, you know, it's just like where there's a will, there's a way. So when you get your children involved in even just growing carrots in a box, a cardboard box, I've even used that, guys. I know that sounds crazy. I've used, like, Dollarama um, planters. I've used coffee cans, pop bottles, cardboard boxes. If you can get your hands on those, you can grow a freaking plant. And trust me, trust and believe when I say, like, Dollar Store has a lot of, like, really cheap seeds. And can we just, like, 
cancel the myth that these seeds are GMO. And like, you know, if we're just on this little bit of a rant right now, I just want to put this out there that I get so tired of hearing the misinformation that, you know, and I guess I'm using that buzzword, misinformation, because I just want to clear the air to anybody that's listening to this, because I, I say this often. And this is actually something that I recently discovered because I was also on the GMO train until very, very recently when I started getting involved in the farming community. The majority of seeds, all of the seeds that you get from the dollar store, you know, the, the big commercial farming places, yeah, sure, a lot of them are owned by Monsanto, but they do not sell GMO seeds. Because GMO seeds are unbelievably regulated, unbelievably regulated. Number one, they're not even approved in like Canada and the States. Like they have GMO corn and they have GMO canola. That's what they have. That's it. Like no GMO weed, no GMO barley, no GMO oats. Like they'll have GMO in the labs, in the labs. But like these GMOs are patented and they're not just going to willy nilly to start selling random seeds to the average Joe that's growing some daisies in their backyard or growing a carrot in their backyard. If it has no means of having a return, just like pharmaceuticals, especially with like brand name, generic name pharmaceuticals, if they don't have a return and like, strict oversight that they can control, they're not going to sell them to you. Like canola, the, the restrictions on canola are so absolutely insane. And the restrictions on GMO corn are so absolutely insane. You have to buy the seeds from these companies. You have to use their specific chemicals for these things at regular intervals. And if you don't use them, you can get nailed, by the way. And then you have to sell it back. You can't keep any of the seeds. You are not legally allowed to keep those seeds. You have to sell them back. Then they change the strains every so many years. Things like canola, you can buy certain strains, but then you, 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 you have to, if you do, if you do save your seeds, depending on your contract, it depends on your contract. If you do save seeds for the next year, you have to make sure that they're actually going to accept those seeds because when they outlist them, when they blacklist them and say you're not allowed to sell them to us anymore past a certain date, if you try to sneak them in, not only will if they catch you, not only will they reject your entire year's worth of farming effort you just put in, which can be upwards of like hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, they'll throw it right back at you and then they'll find you. Like, they're, they're freaking hardcore. So when you get seeds from even, like, Monsanto-owned seed companies, they're all going to be hybrid. If you really want to get picky, like, go with a small company that has invested the time and the knowledge to have either very promoted advertised hybrids or um, a lot of heirlooms. A lot more companies are starting to get a hold of heirloom seeds and make sure that they're not cross-pollinated with other kinds to create hybrids and things. Definitely go with heirloom if you want. But I just wanted to dispel the myth that like when you go and buy a cauliflower, that hybrid automatically means GMO. In nature, a hybrid is like a GMO, but it's in nature. GMO is like lab made, okay? And they, they're, sorry, you didn't care enough about you to sell you GMO seeds. You don't matter that much to them. 
I know you might feel like you're special and like, oh, well, they, they're, they're, they're not allowed to, you know, oh, I don't want to buy their seeds because, no, they don't care that much about you. Sorry. Like, you're, you're not that special. So, hybrid it is, no GMO. And if you're concerned about GMO, then you might want to take a look at your <laughs> labels on your groceries, especially um, in conventional foods, because I'm going to tell you right now, if there's vegetable oil in it, it's going to be canola oil. And, uh, oh, that's another one, soy. But um, it's going to be canola oil. And even like a lot of these organic places, it only has to be 95% of organic material in order for it to be considered organic. So that last 5%, it could be like, you know, a nice organically grown potato, but then cooked in vegetable oil. You know, it's just like things like that. It's just like you just got to be careful and read what's on your labels, hit up the companies, find out how they're, they're making things because the food industry is absolutely wild and devious. The more you look into it, it it's fucking crazy. But, um, yeah, coming back to farming, absolutely. I wish more farmers would get involved in this. Um, okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay, last little bit. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful, beautiful aspects of permaculture. It is, it is inherently collaborative. In this regard, it stands out from the current commercial climate and cannabis cultivation because it's farmers' knowledge sharing rather than protecting trade secrets. I, I can absolutely, absolutely respect wanting to... Further something by keeping it for yourself because there are a lot of people that will just take that and try and keep them for them keep that for themselves too. But at the same time, if we make things public, it's a lot easier for everybody to thrive. And this just comes down to a matter of the heart and a matter of the mind and where your intent truly lies. And that's another conversation we'll have for another time when it's talking about hermetic principles again, but in natural law and things. But yeah, that's definitely like, it's just, yeah. Hemp, a plant with hundreds of possible applications, fits perfectly into the holistic permaculture paradigm. It's not just a single use commodity, it's adding to the local economy, sequestering carbon, cleaning up soil, fostering a diverse ecosystem and so much more. As cannabis and hemp evolve into a more sustainable commercial crop, permaculture's core principles of regeneration and cooperation will no doubt play an increasingly important role. Yep, I like that article. I like that article. Okie dokie. Um, we're going to take another quick break. I just have to see somebody texting me here. So I'm just going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Peace, what's up, y'all? This is Ninja Scroll. Check out my newest stop and renewed mind with songs like this. Salve Coagula. Salve Coagula. Tear down and rebuild the whole system. Vibrant prophecy fulfilled. Snakes in the grass. Son of a bitch. You got snakes in the grass. Rally through the high pass. Traps all laid out. Avoid the bomb blast. I got ya. I got ya right where I want ya. Like a roll line in the field, I stalk ya. Beeped up on ya, beeped on your aura. Laying in wait, ready to pounce on ya. Once I get ya, you'll be a goal. Can you hear me now? Hey, just all part of the game. In the scene with solo, now it's time to open up your eyes. Look at how you're living, just to follow where we're And the new norms, the new world order. Get your house in 
Yeah, go get yours right now at officialninjascroll.web.com. That's officialninjascroll.web.com. Trying to show you everything, but you ain't care. Got you running scared. It's fear that is the main weapon. Peace to the people that was always prepping. I'm stepping on toes trying to wake you up. Freaks, outsiders, weirdos, the wallflowers, oddball loser, fish out of water. Speak up. Talk quieter. We are different. There's no arguing. It's a fact. A patchwork of flaws, we grow and adapt. We're funky, unconventional. See life through kaleidoscope eyes. In a field full of clovers, with our four leaves, we bask in blue skies. Flaws are natural. Our imperfections, our weaknesses, our scars. There is a misfit in all of us. We just have to be brave enough to embrace who we are. Imagine waking up in a trunk. What is grooming? What if I told you we had a 40% increase of human and sex trafficking in our country due to COVID lockdowns? We already had high numbers to begin with. One's Purpose is an amazing organization pounding the pavement every day, helping these survivors get help. Unfortunately, they do not have the funding they need for a safe house. In the state of Oregon, we have zero safe houses for these survivors who have endured the most heinous of crimes. The time is now to get involved. The time is now to help stop human trafficking. Please go to onespurpose.com to get involved. If you need help and if you know someone who needs to get help, please contact 541-221-3448. Make a donation. Make a difference. Hey, everyone. Proof here again. I want to let you know that you want to protect yourself against this upcoming food shortage that's about to happen. I know with all this COVID stuff that growing your own food is going to be extremely important right now. So I want to introduce you to my friends over at groundwithagarden.com and you can get yourself hooked up with a vertical garden that you can grow inside or outside of your house. So if you have a back patio or you don't have room outside, you can grow in either way. And I have a bunch of stuff growing on mine. I have pictures to share. I love this thing. This is the best garden and most successful that I've ever had for gardening for my own self. So let me give you the website again, groundwithagarden.com. That's groundwithagarden.com. We all know that times are tough and things are really expensive right now. So why not save a little bit of your wallet as well as the landfill? Marty.com carries high-quality products at low, low prices, sometimes up to 70% off of retail. I just got a wonderful package of beef jerky for one cent sent to my house through Marty.com. Marty.com offers high-quality products at discount prices. Why? Well, sometimes products are seasonal 
or overstocked or packaging just changes. It's still great quality food, but it's going to end up in the landfill if we don't find some way to distribute it. And leave that to Marty.com. Now, if you want to save a little extra today, you can get $20 off your first order by going to our Facebook group for Dynamic Word Bible Studies and picking up a discount code there. So check out Dynamic Word Bible Studies at Facebook and find Marty.com on our comments. You'll be able to get this free discount code. It's going to give you $20 off, and it's also a great way to support our show and to keep those landfills light and to save some money in your wallet. And I'm all about saving money. So check out Marty.com. Food waste is one of the most easily solvable problems, literally the low-hanging fruit of environmentalism. Pardon the pun, it's my job. About 20% of all produce never makes it off the farm. It's because they just look a little funny, a little weird, but when you cut into it, it's perfectly good food. It's just a total shame. It's totally good stuff. We buy ugly produce directly from farms that often would go to waste because supermarkets won't buy it because of how it looks, and we deliver it to people's doors. standards for an apple. This isn't that ugly at all. Like that's the most common first box like complaint we get. We change that. We educate people. We show them how amazing these fruits and vegetables are. Have food delivered to your house. Box of produce every week. And it's more affordable. At a very reasonable price. Cheaper than the grocery store. I spend a lot less time in grocery stores. It's an adventure every time that you open your box. High quality produce. There's nothing wrong with the produce. And they taste exactly the same. It's not better. Save those fruits and vegetables that get wasted every year. And it's delivered to your door like, but what you why wouldn't you do? Why wouldn't you do? Please go to our website, freedomizerradio.live, and sign up for Imperfect Foods today. Use our promo code and get money off your first order. Go ahead and get some organic and all-natural meats, dairy, snacks, breads, and non-GMO produce. Hello, everybody. This is Sam, host of Open World, formerly known as the Games of Green. I'm just trying to get a hold of our wonderful friend, Rod, seeing as he's coming on tonight. He was here for a little bit, and then he had to dip out, and I was supposed to let him on, but he is off on an adventure here. So I'm going to see if I can get a hold of him again and see if he will log on again. Um Yeah. Here we go. So we are going to go back over some more articles. I just found this one from HJ News. Restoring Navajo heritage. USU's permaculture garden highlights Navajo peaches and cultivates sustainability. This is from, like I said, just HJ News. Okay, located next to the Agri Creamery on Utah State University's Logan campus is a garden dedicated to nurturing both the earth and humanity. The garden is not, not only serves to promote sustainable practices, but also showcases groundbreaking research on the restoration and preservation of Navajo peaches. 
The garden, an integral component of USU's extension permaculture initiative, has been thoughtfully designed to cater to the different requirements of various plants and utilizes the unique attributes each one possesses, according to Lacey Pierce, a prior permaculture intern. Every aspect of the garden's layout has been meticulously planned to mitigate soil damage and minimize the need for artificial fertilizers, Pierce said. One of the initiative sayings is earth care, people care, fair share. (gasps) I love that. Now that is permaculture. I love that so much. Oh my goodness. Okay, continuing. It is such an intimate space of learning and connecting with nature, Pierce said. It is, it's a, it's a really special place and probably not a lot of people know about it and it's there to essentially create abundance and share with humanity. Permaculture, according to the initiative website, is a holistic approach for to caring for both the earth and humanity. How is it that every article that I keep reading gets deeper and deeper into this? I freaking love this. Kudos to whoever wrote, wrote this article. The last one about the cannabis was good. Whoever wrote this one really did their freaking research. That's really awesome. Okay. In Utah's arid climate, permaculture emphasizes wise water usage, soil care, reversing the effects of deforestation, increasing food security, and adapting to projected climate change impacts. Permaculture goes beyond a mere list of gardening techniques according to the initiative. It also encompasses a mindset that recognizes the interconnectedness of man-made systems and the environment while striving for renewability, sustainability, and self-sufficiency. Oh, I love this. Planted inside the permaculture garden, located between USU's nutrition, dietics, dietics, dietetics, whatever, in food sciences building and the facilities building, there are a variety of fruit trees, vegetables, and other plants that require no human input to survive. Thank you. Among the plants in the garden is a Navajo peach tree, which was planted in the garden in 2018 related to research being conducted by Regan Wistalusi, a USU extension agent in the San Juan country. Oh, county, sorry, San Juan County. Lisa Lucy, who is a member of the Navajo Nation, graduated from Utah State with her master's degree in plant science in 2019. Her research focuses on restoring lost Native American crops, specifically Navajo spinach and Navajo peaches. With her expertise in horticulture and agronomy, Lisa Lucy continues to lead a project focused on the preservation and restoration of the Navajo peaches. Though this through this research, which Lucy says she hopes to increase the availability of these heritage crops to Navajo populations and perpetuate traditional cultural knowledge. My first and foremost goal is to preserve um, and protect these trees so that we can eventually restore to the Native American communities in abundance, which Lucy said. That way is a food source that is accessible in large quantities to entire communities and not just individual families. She said the population of these peaches is currently little to none, with less than 2% of the original population that existed 50 years ago. Oh, no. Not good. The peaches hold a great cultural significance as it was part of the Navajo people's agricultural practices for centuries. According to the National Park Service, who Lucy is currently collaborating with, 
Canyon de Shelley National Monument in Apache Country, Arizona, was the center of Navajo peach production by the 18th century. Indigenous people use these peaches in different ways, the NPS said, including boiling the fruit, eating them while ripe, and sun drying the store for later consumption and trade. That's, that's pretty basic. It's a peach. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> that's what everybody uses them for. But that's cool, though. However, in the 1849 California gold rush, thousands of miners traveled to the southwest, resulting in new settlements and subsequent conflicts leading to the, leading to the displacement of the Navajo people, including their peach orchards, according to the NPS. And that's where it is. Bullshit. Nonsense. I don't like that. Blech. And, of course, they didn't do a good job taking care of it. No, they probably just went and cut them all around. Nonsense. In 1863, the United States Army forced Navajo people from the lands, according to NPS, of course they did, resulting in a tragic episode known as the Long Walk. These events threatened the survival of the Navajo peaches, and only a small fraction of the original population remained. Through her research, excuse me, guys, with Lucy said her goals are to document the benefits of Navajo peaches, preserve their genetic diversity and restore them to the rightful place in the Navajo community. It's part of reclaiming the story of who we are as people, that we're not just hunters and gatherers, but we are extensive farmers and we have been land stewards to the areas that each of our tribal communities have lived in, with Lucy said. There were plentiful and abundant food sources that we that we not just gathered and hunted for, but we also grew, managed, and domesticated for in lands here. Lisa Lucy said she is currently engaged in seeking funding for her efforts to bring back the Navajo peach trees to their original locations in Canyon de Shelly and Capitol Reef National Park. Canyon de Shelly still supports a thriving Navajo community. Lisa Lucy hopes the restoration of these peaches will contribute to the community's sustainability and well-being. Lisa Lucy said her connection to the research is what drives her to continue it. Through the research, she said that she's been able to better understand herself and her heritage. This work, this work has helped me begin identifying myself and reestablishing the culture and traditions that have been lost because of generational trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa Lucy said, there are currently two Navajo peach trees on USU Logan campus commemorating with Lucy's research, one in the permaculture garden and the other in the Richard and Munyan Anderson Engineering Building. These peaches themselves, according to with Lucy, are smaller than the average peach, and each tree produces peaches of their own unique flavor, texture, and sweetness. That's, that's a lot of trees. That's what they do. When you actually pay attention to the way trees, you'll have one choke cherry bush that have these big, beautiful, not so choky cherries, these not choke cherries, and then you'll go just a little far over, and then you'll have these ones that are smaller and more tart. That, that's what trees do, man. Pierce said she had the opportunity to witness with Lucy and her father bless the permaculture garden in the peach tree in 2020. I feel like it gave the space for an even deeper connection to all living and spiritual things in the world, Pierce said. <clears throat> According to Pierce, where Lucy's work is directly correlated to permaculture principles as it signifies something that is resilient and indigenous. In the permaculture garden, the Navajo peach tree is never pruned and has no human intervention at all. Hmm. Interesting. It's just nature and the tree doing its thing, Pierce said. Vista Lucy says she wants the community to hear about her research as it can educate individuals on Navajo history and alternative food sources. She also hopes her research can get more communities to think about land use and utilizing natural vegetation. 
<clears throat> you know, I'm curious to know how these trees grow as fruit trees that they don't have to be pruned. Because really, truly, honestly, you don't really ever have to prune a fruit tree when they're growing. However, if you do prune them, depending on the tree, it will grow in a specific way that it will help bear oftentimes a little less fruit, but a little bit bigger fruit. Just the way you prune the tree helps it grow a little different. Okay. Rod, I can see on you're on the line. Just let me finish this article, and then I'm going to get right to you there, bud. Um, okay. So the land needs to be looked at as not just a piece of property, as a way of giving life to all people on earth, with Lucy said. How can we understand the importance of that gift that we all have the right to receive to be able to have a life here on earth? She said that many community members have reached out to her asking if they can purchase the fruit from the trees or the tree itself. Because of one of the biggest goals of her research is to protect the Navajo peach from exploitation, Ms. Lucy said she wants to establish protective rights to plant before it's distributed outside of indigenous communities. See, and that to me goes against permaculture. I can see why she's doing it. I can see why she's doing it. But if the goal of permaculture is to share and you're mad at corporations making trade secrets and you want to essentially take ownership over these peaches before they're distributed. Because, like, let's face it, when everything is commercialized, I can see why you want to be kind of like the first one that has the most rights to it. But in terms of permaculture, like, you're doing it backwards. And I can see why you want to justify it to do that that way, but if a corporation isn't allowed to do it, then you shouldn't be doing it either. Although, again, I can see and respect why you would want to do that. To those who wish to provide guidance or support with Lucy in her continuing research and can reach her at Regan, R-E-A-G-A-N dot W-Y-T-S-A-L-U-C-Y at U-S-U dot E-D-U. Her efforts, she said, are nowhere near finished. This research is probably going to be a lifelong endeavor. She said, I don't know if I would ever feel confident enough to pass it on. Well, (laughs) that... Welcome to being human. The whole point of this is to keep doing things that we can continue to give to younger generations. So, anyway. All right. Roger here. Yes. How are you? I am, uh, how am I? You know, I, I never really think about that. You see, I'm not just giving a mechanical answer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I'm regretting the past and uh, planning the future. Yes. 
not learning from the past and planning the future? Oh, I would hope so. There we go. Yes, I like that better. I like that better. Learning from the past and and, and uh, regarding the future. No. <laughs> so yeah, we just kind of well, finished talking about some permaculture stuff. So if you want to add anything or if you want to go off on anything, so I'm sure you've got some fun stuff that you would love to talk to, or if you want to comment on anything that was said, like feel free, go ahead. Well, um, yes, I visited an organic farm in Oregon a while ago. And uh, they were they were preparing uh, preparing soil by letting the animals poop on it for a year. Pens they would have the, the pigs. They had several different kinds of animals. They had pigs and chickens and and uh, cattle. And they would uh, have say little little <clears throat> pig yard. They would train the pigs to respect the wires by putting the wires. They they put a concrete they put them in a concrete room, I guess it was, uh, with with the with the wires in it. And the, a pig, uh, if it runs into, into something and and it hurts, it, instead of backing up, it'll just keep running and through and, and try, tries to get through the other way. So uh, the, these pigs would would want to get out, and they they'd uh, run into the run into the wires, and they'd also run into the concrete walls. And eventually, they learned not to do that. And after they were trained, <clears throat> then they would move the peg out of the concrete room, uh, the, the pen out of the concrete room, and they and they would uh, learn not to try to cross the wires. I think also there there are electric wires, and so they would they'd be mm. sitting there trying uh, trying to burst through the concrete wires and not being able to. So they eventually learned, just like uh, elephants were trained to uh, probably still are trained to to be leashed by a little tiny um, ankle chain. They aren't big enough to hold up a grown elephant, but they were big enough when the elephant was small, and the elephant could not get out of it and just learn not to try. And so it's still good when the elephant's big. So these 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 um, I look at these horribly dangerous animals in this side of this fence, and uh, they'd be uh, the pens were on wheels, uh, so they they let the uh, the pigs poop wherever they were, and then after a period of time they they'd uh, move the pen over to the next section of land. And, and do it over mm-hmm. there. And maybe that's a normal thing. That's the first time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said they, their animals had a good life and one bad day. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. that's the way to describe it. Yeah. And they, they did look like they had good lives. Mm-hmm. So they had the, they had a cycle of the, the you know, the, the poop attracts flies, and the chickens eat the flies, and the and then they, um, I guess the chickens poop, whatever it was. Oh, and they they had good uh, eggs, also good yellow eggs because of all the bugs they ate. Hmm. There we go. Yeah, that's the good way to do that. Uh so let's see. Uh, the other thing I know. The king of Cambodia, I think it was, a while ago, started a program of uh, trying to fight the, the cycle of uh, monsoon and drought. Because in the equator, or near the equator, you have these monsoon season where there's huge winds circling the planet and, <clears throat> and uh, rain. Uh, 
and then in the summer it's dry. Mm-hmm. I'm around the equator. It's not exactly summer versus winter. That's the sun is overhead, and then it's to, to the north or south, and then it's overhead again, to the north or south again. So anyway, during the hot season, everything would dry out, uh, and they would be, have a shortage of water. And so the king wanted to have a program of having everybody, as you say, plant a tree in their backyard or have some sort of mm-hmm. um, some sort of things with roots. That alfalfa roots, I think, can get 150 feet deep. And so they plant alfalfa in the desert, and once they can get it to keep from dying long enough, they can put a dripper on it and get it to find water, then you've got alfalfa in the desert. Uh, yeah. So they, they plant these they plant these things in the, in the uh, whatever it is, in the Cambodia. And the, the king, as a good king should, went around visiting all these things and checking them out. I did not know King of yeah. Cambodia still had a king. There are still a few kingdoms in this world. Mm-hmm. Tonga is another kingdom. Hmm. So, yeah, Tonga is a is a very Christian island, and if you uh, they take their Sunday rest very seriously. If you if you make noise on Sunday, if you do work on Sunday, you make noise, you'll get arrested. Hmm. They okay. had a family dispute. That, that's pretty right. intense, but okay. They they had a family dispute with or near family dispute with uh, with uh, Fiji. This, there was a dictator named Baini Marama. Sounds like banana Rama, but isn't. Uh, he was the most said to be the most laid back dictator in the world. Fiji, you know, is just laid back. Uh, and somebody from Tonga tried to. Uh, oh, I guess it was a dissident, his nephew or something, and the Tonga sent a ship to pick the guy up, and Fiji got mad at Tonga, and Tonga said, "Oh no, no, we stayed outside 200 miles, which is you know hard to believe, but that's what they said, and nobody could prove it." So that's about all I know about Fiji and Tonga and kings and kingdoms. Of course, England is still a kingdom. Yeah, I should look up kingdoms and see what's still a kingdom. There's still are a few. So, uh, I wonder about permaculture. I don't know a lot about permaculture in the soil, except what everybody else knows. Do you want to read a book? Do I want to read a book? Oh, no, no. I already read a book. Do you want to read a book? What do we have in mind? What do we have in mind? Well, I would like to go through Bill Mollison's book on permaculture on the radio show over the next couple of weeks. And if you want, I can send you the link to the book that's free to download. And we could read that together and discuss. What do you thought? That would be good. Very good. Do it. Okay, perfect. After we're done show today, then I'll send that to you. Okay. I'm sure the rest of the readers would benefit from The rest of our listeners would benefit from, from that also. Yes, there's another book on permaculture that I'm reading. I'll see if I can find an online link for that one. And if I can find it, I'll send that one to you too. But Bill Moulton's is pretty good. So it'd be like a book study. And instead of doing it alone, it'd be fun to do it with a friend. Oh, now I'm excited. Now I'm excited. Here we go. But yeah. No, it's good because, like, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, like, permaculture people generally, 
think about permaculture that it's just like sustainable growing systems but it's so much more like you're talking about like um you know with the alfalfa and growing the roots deeper that's like something that like a lot of people like a lot of people don't really think about it and like they tried to teach us that i remember specifically they tried to teach us that kind of a little bit back in like you know school kind of thing and a little bit in university but like I don't think because of like technology and because our culture and society has gravitated away. Like I went on a rant today a little bit about um, getting your children involved with growing food and things like that. But I don't think people understand the um, importance it is to have, especially on the prairies and things like, you know, all the little like, hippie tree lovers drive that home. But people don't really understand how important it is to have natural grasses and plants and things that are growing here. Because, like, you see these comparisons all the time, like a, like a, a grass from, like, um, like a, you know, a golf course, a golf course grass? Like, the, the roots on natural pear prairie plants are so much deeper. Actually, I just found this infographic in the Matthews, in Matthew Stephan's group. Let me see. Uh, root systems of prairie plants. The fundamental basis for encouraging use of native plant species for improved soil erosion control in Streams and stormwater facilities lies in the fact that native plants have extensive root systems which improve the ability or the ability of the soil to infiltrate and withstand wet or erosive conditions. Natural plant species like those listed in the guide often have greater biomass below the surface. In this illustration, note the Kentucky bluegrass shown on the far left, and I will post this, I'll, I'll send this to you in the uh, in the um uh the messenger and i've actually i might actually post this to the freedomizer page itself so that everybody if they're listening um i'll post this to the freedomizer facebook page you can hop over there and check this out um when compared to native grass and form species exhibits a shallow root system illustration provided by heidi natura of the conservation research institute and like there's a whole list of plants i can't zoom in on my computer but there's like purple pale purple coneflower, big blue stem, the big blue stem goes down, uh, I think the big blue stem, it goes down 10 feet, 9, 10 feet, their wrist distance go down, uh, com compass grass, I think this is called, that one goes down 15 feet, uh, cylindric blazing star, that one goes down 15 feet, uh, switchgrass goes down about 10, 11 feet. Lead plant, lead plant, that's what it's called. That one goes down like this, like the, all of these. This is just amazing. We're not just talking like one or two feet. Like these, the whole list of these plants, the shortest one is like five and a half, six feet down. The rest of these are average nine feet, average seven to nine feet. Like it's absolutely crazy pants. Do and I'm going to go post this on the Freedomizer page right now. I feel like 
you guys might want to see this. I'm going to switch my profile. Am I even on the Freedomizer page? Hold on. Yep, I am. Freedomizer Radio. We're going to go post that right now for everybody to see. I'm just waiting for my profile. Feel free to make a comment. I'm just waiting for my stuff to load here. I have found one titled Permaculture, a Designer's Manual. I think that's the one. From Bill Mollison? Bill Mollison, yes. There's another one. one. Yeah. And I found it in French, which is partly... I can read French if I absolutely have to. Um, But I'm getting it. He wants me to know what a bus looks like. Found an article here, Permaculture for Climate Change Resilience in Mexico. This one was done February 6, 2023. So it's almost a year old. But talking about how, again, as export agribusinesses drains 85% of our groundwater, local wells are drying up. Deeper well waters are often poisoned with concentrated levels of naturally occurring arsenic and fluoride. Yeah, so now they're starting to get into permaculture, harm rainwater harvesting, all those other kinds of things. I'll send this to you too. Actually, I'm going to post well, I think. Let me post this to... If I'm sending things to you, I'm going to post them in the Freedomizer chat. Oh, apparently we do not have a chat on the blog talk. So we're just going to go to freedomizerradio.com. If you're listening live right now, I am over on freedomizerradio.com. You can type in freedomizerradio.com, F-R-E-E-D-O-M-I-Z-E-R-R-A-D-I-O. Dot com, click the Listen Live button, and there's a little chat box over there that I'm going to be posting this article into, and you are welcome to check it out. There we go. Ah, don't do this to me, man. Rude. And there comes open the Microsoft News again. Because, you know... My computer's got a stroke out the minute I got anything important to do here. It is 612 pages. Yeah, it's not a very, very long book. It's like a very short read, and I'm sure you're like super fast at reading. So. Yeah. I did learn a bit once about, about intensive agriculture, where you put a plant that's all next to a plant that's short. You put one with deep roots next to one with shallow roots. Uh, you plant one early in the season that's followed by one late in the season. And it's like a chess game. Oh. Interesting. And there was also a method of disturbing the uh, disturbing the soil quite far down. You dig a you you dig a ditch and then put the soil at the end of your you know somewhere somewhere out of the way and you dig another ditch underneath that one so you've got a double layer layer ditch and then you dig a second ditch and dump the dump the uh 
uh, dump the soil into the first ditch and keep moving along like that um, until you get to the end and finally you, you you move the dirt all the way from the first place to, to that one. Uh, like you're saying, it it tears up all the all, all the fungi and everything. So you, you mix in mm-hmm. all the desirable soil amendments at that time. Yeah. You've been here for years. Hmm. And then you don't disturb it again for a long time. Interesting. And then it just kind of balances itself out, hey? Love this stuff. This is so fascinating. Just looking for another article. See if we can find another article here. Oh, um, since we have an hour left, I know sometimes you like to pop on and you like to do um, like a guided meditation or anything. Did you want to do one of those today or not? Because otherwise we'll just be chatting. Are you there? My phone hang up. Rod, did we lose you? I don't hear you, buddy. No, the call has dropped. How dare you? Lame. We'll give him a minute to see if he can call back in. Phone might have died. Service might have been brutal. I'm not really sure what's happened there. So we'll just keep an eye open for Rod as uh, we're waiting. And in the meantime, we're going to continue... See if we can find another article or two um, to go over. I'm just taking out Google. Some of these, some of these are a little newer, but some of them are a little older. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at this! Here we go. Antioch. Okay, so this is from wyso.org. Antioch College to N-T-I-O-C-H. College to launch permaculture design certificate for home gardeners. Farmers getting in on this. Making it mainstream and taking all the money. Just kidding. At least people are learning. Antioch College will first will launch its first permaculture design certification later this summer in partnership with the Cincinnati Permaculture Institute. It will be a 72-hour intensive for beginning or experienced home gardeners and farmers. People enrolled in the intensive will learn ecological design and integrating patterns of nature as guides as guides for creating resilient landscapes in home gardens, communities, and habitats. Permaculture is a system of ethics, principles, tools, and skills that help us understand the role humans play in ecosystems we inhabit and how to make choices to affect those ecosystems for the better, protecting, preserving, and healing the earth even as we harvest from it. Suzanne Vonderhaar, who will be leading the intensive and is the director from the Cincinnati Permaculture Institute, said, the intensive will be held over three weeks, starting July 14th through 30th. So obviously you missed that already, but yeah, this is just really interesting. Rod, come back. Scared about reading books and then decided to leave? I wouldn't think so. <laughs> oh, I am not. I am not awake today. My goodness. Well, I mean, I was awake, but you guys had that damn time change. Drives me nuts. Because Saskatchewan does not get time change like you guys do. Everybody else put everything back an hour. So from for my time, it's like, you know, oh, my should, show did start at 7 and it went from, from 7 to 10 and now it's 8 to 11. So it's late and I'm tired. <laughs> All right, you're back. Yeah. 
Nice. Okie dokie. Yeah. Um, before you dropped off, I was asking, because I know, like, here or there, you like to do guided meditations um, during the show. I was just asking if you wanted to do one today, because if so, then I'm going to shut up soon and let you do your guided meditation. If not, then we're just going to keep talking. I hadn't really prepared for it. I feel like we ought to just keep talking. That's okay. That's okay. I'm not going to put you on the spot and say you have to do one. I just know that, like, sometimes you like to do one. So I figured if you wanted to do one today, then I'll shut up soon to give you, like, the whole hour to, you know, do what you want to do to do with that. Or if um, you want to just keep talking, we can just keep talking. That's perfectly fine by me. Yeah. Um, I, I I would feel happier if I prepared a script and... Next time, then. I haven't got my script in front of me. That's okay. Next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No worries. Um, I'm just looking through some more articles. Edmontonians learn permaculture to turn front yards into food lots. Marine permaculture project selected as milestone winner for Elon Musk's X. Oh, is this a real article? I know you like talking about Elon Musk, so this looks really interesting. Oh, hold on here. Um, this is from WSP.com, and it was on news. So, okay, well, I'm going to read this. I don't know if this is legit or not, but I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to check it out. So I just so there's this xprize.org slash about slash mission. It was a hyperlink um, talking about um, this was a prize from Elon Musk or something. It looks very fancy, but anyway, let's go to the article. So xprize carbon. Oh, hold on. Marine Permaculture Project selected as a milestone winner for Elon Musk's xprize carbon removal competition since late 2021. WS Foundation in an exciting project to develop a prototype design for marine permaculture arrays. We are thrilled to announce that it, it has been selected as one of the milestone winners for Elon Musk's S-Price Carbon Removal Competition. The project aims to reestablish red seaweed forests and provide farmers with simple, highly efficient, typhoon-resilient offshore seaweed mariculture. Julia Carpenter, Regional Executive, Transport Major Project says the oceans have been fixing and sinking carbon for billions of years. They rely on natural upwelling to provide macronutrients to seaweed ecosystems and oceanic life. Global warming has distributed normal climate patterns and reduced natural upwelling. Marine permaculture can restore ocean circulation, regenerate kelp forests, fish habitat, and fix gigatons of CO2 per year. It can offer food security to over a billion people relying on the ocean for food. Using a small-scale 12-meter diameter prototype developed last year, the system was successful in growing red seaweed and survived the Category 5 typhoon in December 2021. WSP was brought in to verify the design of the smaller system and have worked with the Climate Foundation on developing the next phase of the project, scaling it up, in size by a factor of 10 in 2022 and then another factor of 10 by 2023. Three to farm system that is one hectare in size. 
Right now, the team is looking at scaling up the marine permaculture arrays in the Philippines. The ultimate goal is to develop large-scale autonomous seaweed cultivation and aid to aid in help re- in help regenerate seaweed ecosystem services of offshore that have already been lost, and to ask or sorry, and to also help track the regenerative intervention as a blue carbon sink. The X Prize for Carbon Removal Competition is aimed at tackling the biggest threat facing humanity, fighting climate change, and rebalancing Earth's carbon cycle. Funded by Elon Musk and the Musk Foundation, this competition is offering 100 million USD in overall prize money, the largest incentive prize in history. As a milestone winner, our project is one of the 15 projects that have been recognized as the most promising carbon removal concepts that will help Earth restore its carbon balance. Each of the 15 winning teams will receive $1 million in support. The competition runs for four years and invites, in, and invites innovators and teams from around the world to create and demonstrate solutions that can pull carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere or oceans and sequester it durably and sustainably. Sustainably. To win the grand prize, teams must demonstrate a working solution at a scale of at least 1,000 tons removed per year, model their cost scale of 1 million tons per year, and show a pathway to achieving a scale of 10 gigatons per year before 2050. Having won the Smilestone X Prize, the carbon removal, the Climate Foundation and other winners will scale their projects. Additional grand prizes will be awarded in 2025 with 50 million paid to a single grand prize winner and 30 million to be distributed among two to three additional winners. Thomas Cooper, <clears throat> Director of Bridges Maritime Structure says, no corner of the globe is immune from the devastating consequences of climate change. As for the infinite cost of climate change approaches, irrevisible highs, we're proud to be working alongside the Climate Foundation to see our shared version of developing sustainable economic solutions to urgent environmental issues be- become a reality. Today, WSC's multidisciplinary team, which includes transport, major projects, maritime resources, and specialists in our bridge team, has provided the following services under an in-kind agreement. Engineering, finite element analysis, FEA, and HTPE frame to understand member sizing and behavior, review the control system specification, and advise on long lead procurement items, including traction and control system, high-level design review of the overall offshore seaweed marine permaculture platform. Professional services include project management and identification and introductions to other specialists, e.g. mooring financial sustainability modeling, introductions to clients with offshore infrastructure and with interest in net zero asset decommissioning, communication and marketing. You know, I'm just kind of like really interested and surprised, although I'm at the same time, I'm not surprised that Elon Musk allegedly would put a lot of money and the Musk Foundation would put money into something like this. You know what? You have a computer in front of you? You say, let's Google this. I'm curious. Yeah, I'm looking at the article here. Yeah? Yeah, I found it. Excellent. We've got Thomas Cooper, Director of Bridges Maritime and Structures, says, no corner of the globe is immune from the devastating consequences of climate change. As the infinite cost of climate change approaches irreversible highs, we're proud to be working along the Climate Foundation to see our shared vision of developing sustainable economic solutions to urgent environmental issues become a reality. That's a corporate sentence. Mm-hmm. 
So their multidisciplinary team includes transport, major projects, maritime resources, and specialists from the bridge team who provided services, engineering, finite element analysis of the frame, the HDPD. HDPE, I guess that's a kind of plastic frame to understand member sizing behavior. Uh, review the control system specification and advise on long lead procurement items, including traction and control systems. High-level design review of the overall offshore seaweed marine permaculture platform. Professional services, project management, identification, and introductions to other specialists, e.g. mooring and financial sustainability modeling. Introduction to clients with offshore infrastructure with an interest in net zero and other asset decommissioning, communication and marketing. That's the end of the article that I see. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just heading over to Google. It's like, you know, you type in like Elon Musk Foundation Thomas Cooper and I'm, that the, the WSP is the first one that pops up. I just want to see if there's like any other right, well, I, article. I put in the words, right, I put in the words, some of the key words as you were. Seeing mm-hmm. them, uh, like hectare and autonomous, uh, ah. unusual enough words. You combine them, and you, you can. Uh, so here's that X Prize Foundation bio, Elon Musk, because we all know his biography. X Prize Climate Foundation, climatefoundation.org. The X Prize Climate Removal is aimed at tackling the biggest threat facing humanity, fighting climate change and rebalancing Earth's carbon cycle. You know, I took a class in the 80s called um, Environmental Engineering, and they did yeah. they didn't mention first of all peak oil. At some point, the oil was supposed to run out, and it was just about where I would not have to worry about it. Uh, and and then it, it was the next thing was supposed to be coal. Mm-hmm. Coal would last another century or and a half or so and and then that peaked off and they, they they showed the demand curve continuing up and the next thing was just a big question mark uh, just a question mark yeah, so but well and cool yeah, so and then it's what? just an assumption that we, we need so much was well, an assumption we need so much energy therefore we will always have enough energy this, this much energy one way or another and first we'd get it by using mm-hmm. oil and when we get that out we'd, we'd be desperate enough to dig up all the coal when that was gone then we'd do something but but it, mm-hmm. it was wasn't wasn't a notion that maybe we'd have to end up using less. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, probably it would be fusion by then. Fusion is the sort of you thing. You know, that, that's now that you mention that, future. like I remember when I went to university, and I was just like, you know, ten years or so ago. Like it wasn't even it wasn't the eighties. It was like you know, twenty ten. Mm-hmm. They they were still on about that shit. They were still on about that stuff. Yeah, well, I see news about fusion breakthroughs here and there. Uh, there's a that's different than fission, right? Yes, fission is where is where you take heavy atoms, heavy nuclei, and split them, and you get energy. Fusion is where you take light atoms and put them together, and you get energy. Hmm. You hmm. might wonder you might wonder what's the sweet spot in the middle that you can't take, get any energy out of, and that's iron. Uh, eventually, all the stars will be made what? of iron because iron. iron. Iron is the most stable. It's the most stable. It's the lowest energy uh, nucleus. So, uh, eventually, all the stars stars will be made of iron because the lighter elements are fusing together. When they get past iron, they can't you, you can't get any more out by splitting them further, and so they'll just sit there. Eventually, hmm. the sun will be made of iron. The uh, if it's a whole lot heavier than the sun, then 
that point that gravity, as it cools down or producing all this radiation pressure, to hold off the gravity. I mean, you that right, will, will crush the atoms all into one big, huge, smooshed together mass, and then it will blow up as a, uh, a, a sort of gigantic nuclear reaction as a uh, as a supernova. And that's where we get all the elements heavier than iron. Because you were wondering, weren't you, how do you possibly get elements heavier than iron if that's the most stable and you get fusion from light lightest up to there? So, the, 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 yeah, the, uh, they all squished together in this big supernova, and then you get the, the heavier elements. So all of our uranium and all lead and all copper, air, copper, copper, slash, and iron. Anything heavier than iron all came from that supernova near the sun, and then all that material got caught in our sun's orbit and became the Earth and the rocky planets. Okay. Uh, so, yes, fusion is where you take light elements and, and put them together. And they don't, okay, they don't want to question. do that. There's, I'm sorry? I said, here's a question. Yeah. Okay. Before we continue. Because, like, okay, so, like, we already know, like, the ill effects of, like, you know, um, pulling the heavy ones apart. You know, you get things like Chernobyl and things happen, and now they've got the fusion. Like, have they ever, like, I mean, this is probably a really stupid question, but, like, have they ever tried to, like, smush and, like, take apart? the heavier ones or if now with the lighter ones they're putting them together like isn't it going to be like a perpetual thing where like they take the lighter ones apart and then smush them back together well of course, if, you, if, you did, if you did that if you did that you have to put energy in the, the other half cycle so you, you know yeah. it's like like trying to it's like trying to burn burn a thing and then you take the carbon dioxide and make it make it back into fuel you know you got to put the energy back in which i've actually seen a proposal we're going to take the we're gonna, I've actually seen a proposal like that. We're going to keep, take carbon dioxide out of the air and then, and then separate it to carbon. No, no, no. You're just unburning coal. You've got to put in all the energy that you would have got out from burning it. not going to work. But uh, to answer your question, which isn't quite the question you asked, but it's a real question, fusion is very clean. Uh, with fission, with the heavy elements, you split it and you get something that's still unstable and it wants to split further. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, with, with fusion, you put it together but they don't. It's not going to react by itself. And uh, also, the heavier ones, when they when they split apart, uh, they also spit out some neutrons and stuff, which is the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know, there's like three different three different types of nuclear reaction. I took a class in to run a nuclear reactor once, and the instructor said I probably knew more about the physics than he did. Um, so, yeah, um, man, it's too bad you're not around here because we have a whole ass synchrotron in the city. You would love that. Be able to take a synchrotron? You would love that. Well, I'll I'll see if I can check it out by remote control. Do it. If you ever come up to Canada by any chance and taking a synchrotron, I'll find people on the inside. Okay, good. Good. Uh, so you you take your hydrogen, your, your uh, not ordinary hydrogen because you haven't got enough neutrons. You've got to have a balance of protons and neutrons, otherwise it won't stay together. But you take your heavy water and you fuse it together, and you uh, you, you you can get some neutrons out. Do anything by itself to make to make more. See, you don't get a waste product that's radioactive, so it's much. It's much cleaner that way. So mm-hmm. uh, it just requires 
you're trying to push things together that don't want to, to stay together. You have electrical repulsion for the nuclei, which are positively charged. And so you're just trying to push these two. It's like pushing, pushing two North Poles of a magnet together. They don't want to. Uh, when you can overcome it enough to get to the range where the strong nuclear force works, then they will grab hold of each other, and then you get the reaction. But until then, it's all it's all pushing. Uh, and if you try to, uh, there's, there's just different methods. Of course, if you uh, there's the hydrogen bomb. That's the easy one. That's been known to work for a while, but it's hard to control. Mm-hmm. You know, you set off and set up an H bomb, and then you've got a facility and build another one, and then you do it again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then there's the Russians invented the tokamak, which is a circular. It's a circular or uh, path of the of the hydrogen itself in a big magnet. So you have this big donut-shaped magnet, and then it's unstable. And lately, people have used computers to figure out uh, a, a a complicated path that might be stable. Instead of an ordinary donut shape, it's a very twisted up donut. Hmm. And uh, there's a outfit named Helion. Oh, of course, there's the, the like Shiva at Berkeley. There's a you take a gazillion lasers and you put you put uh, a very short pulse of laser light at it from all directions and you you crush this thing with with light pressure from all directions and that can still be unsta- it still has instability so if it's not perfect sphere then the part where it's a lump is sticky out but it will stick out more and it ruins the whole thing so it has to be well, very perfectly done. And you, you have to have you, not just a room full of lasers; it's a whole building full of lasers mm-hmm. with with then capacitors in another building to get all the power. You've got to charge all things, but it's got to go bam, and then you've got to do it again. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a lot of overhead. I tried to come up with cold fusion, which is an intriguing idea because the metal palladium absorbs hydrogen. So they said, well, it's it's uh, it gets the hydrogen closer together than you would with um, with just ordinary heavy water. So they said, okay, what happens if you absorb heavy water into this thing? And they, they used it. Uh, they used electricity to help pull it in. And they they said they got neutrons out, but it turns out they were measuring radon. Mm. Yeah. You know, I read a Wall Street article about it that said that they, they weren't getting the results out that they expected, but they... So they figured they had invented some entirely new kind of fusion, and that just did not sound right to me at all, because it's the sort of thing that's either barely going to work or it's not going to go to work. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find some, some completely unexpected result. So that sounded completely bogus to me, and it, it was. Uh, and I knew I ought to sell short on palladium futures, because, but I didn't know how to do that. And so I didn't. Anyway, because um, everybody, everybody in the world was suddenly interested in palladium, and, and the price went through the roof until it was discovered to be no good. Went mm-hmm. back down. All right. Yeah. Selling short is where you borrow something, and normally you're supposed to, like a stock, you're supposed to buy low and sell high. And then selling short is the same thing in reverse order. So you first sell high and then buy low. So how do you do that? Okay. First, you have to borrow it. First, you have to borrow. So for you, borrow a stock or or a palladium, palladium. Uh, certificates representing palladium or something, uh, you borrow it and sell it and then wait for the price to go mm-hmm. down and then, then you then you buy it back and return the money. Yes, the price 
slid down, otherwise you've got to cover it. All right, so wait a uh, and there's another interesting, very interesting approach, which is to use ultrasonics. Use use high frequency sound, and it will make cavitations. It will make little bubbles, and the bubbles expand and contract. And when they expand, they contract really hard. So they can try to do things over short, everything over a short period of time. It's just this this tremendous way up. Uh, I think there's a there's a crustacean with a with a claw that can that can uh, violently hit the water with its claw, and it could get some. It can get the water to flash. It can get a uh, and a um, little spark of light from some sort of mm-hmm. some sort of effect. And it's a similar thing. And it can get into the same kind of range. Anyway, so you you have um, um, like a uh, a circular flask, and you've got a a vibrator, uh, ultrasonic vibrator attached to it, and so your your whole vibrates. And so in the very center of the sphere, you have maybe a few bubbles with the opening and closing like that. And uh, mm-hmm. probably it can actually get fusion that way. And getting fusion and getting fusion that gets more energy out than you put in, those are two different things. Yeah. But this this sounds intriguing. So I wonder if anyone has tried combining the idea of packing the hydrogen into palladium I don't know if you can do that in a palladium dust or whether it has to be a solid block that you've got electrical connections to. But if you can do it in a dust, then you suspend that in the water, and some of it's going to be in this zone where the, the bubbles are going crunch, crunch, crunch. And, and boy, that, those two effects together might be able to push it over the edge. I haven't looked mm-hmm. at any numbers of that or, or anyone else. So, so yeah. uh, I've read about a Farnsworth user. Farnsworth is the guy who invented television, the old... Uh, cathode ray tube. Before we had blaze, we had the cathode ray tube that it accelerates electron beam. It's got a vacuum tube at the front, uh, so that they were not flat. They could not be flat because they had to resist a vacuum. They had to withstand the, the atmospheric pressure. It had to be round uh, per curved surface on the front. And then there'd be a long, a long sort of bottle behind that, and, and at the end of that would be the works where the electrons come out, and they would they would be steered by varying magnetic fields to form a, a pattern on the screen, uh, and they would hit yeah. phosphor on the back of the screen and, and, and glow. So, Philo Philo P H I L Philo T Farnsworth invented that, and he also invented the fuser, this fuser machine. And you can you can build a, a Philo Farnsworth fuser, a fusion. And there's plenty of video, YouTube videos about that. Mm-hmm. And then the challenge, the challenge, of course, as I said, is to get it to put out more energy than you put in. That's what no one can do. But if you want to, by the way, if you want heat, you, by definition, heat, a heater is always 100% efficiency because the, the, uh, the energy you want out is heat. And when you try to convert energy from one form into the other, the some of it is always lost as heat, but if it's heat, heat is what you want, then you, you've you got 100% efficiency. So the first application, I suppose, would be to, to have a, a fusion device which is more out than you would have if you just ran it through a toaster. If you, because you're using up for some of your nuclear fuel you're, you're, and getting your uh, fusion out. So, yeah. Uh, hmm. Plenty of plenty of interesting videos on tabletop fusion. 
about that. So it's clean. It's clean compared to fission. Because, yeah, I've been hearing a lot of people um, talking about fission versus fusion. And, I like, I'm not going to lie. I say, like, I haven't really done a lot of research in it. A lot of that stuff is over my head. But that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and fission got a name for being dirty and and, and yeah, and poisonous. Uh, but not if you take care of the. Uh, there's a thing that is, is you could have the the waste as a liquid or as a solid, or you could put it into a form mm-hmm. of a glass. And I think the story was that the government mandated, the U.S. government mandated that all it had to be a liquid, and that they had to have all the problems. And whereas they could have just put it into a glass and put it out in the desert and let it sit for 100,000 years or whatever it needs to be. But for some reason that was made illegal, and so they have all they have to deal with all the problems. Uh, mm. That's a rumor I heard. I haven't looked it up. Um, fusion. Uh, so there's a there's an interest. Yes, Canada Canada made a a reactor called a CANDU. C A N D U. It's uh, I think the deal is deflated uranium. It's designed in such a way as to be safe, so that the Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, uh, once once the material got too hot, it would sink to the bottom and get hotter. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the moderator, I guess the it, it, the moderators were graphite rods that you'd stick into there. Uh, whereas the, the Canada's reactor, the Canada reactor, once it got hot, it got to be more moderated. And so it shut itself down. That's an interesting design that's just been sitting in mothballs for decades. Hmm. Uh, yeah, Germany, I think, shut down their nuclear reactors in favor of uh, coal or maybe diesel. And, and then Russia invaded and, and they shut off the gas, natural gas, and Germany had a problem. Yeah, I saw that, and then they were freaking out because they're going to have shortages, and it's just like, oh, now we're going back to coal, and it's just like, so you shut down your reactors to go back to coal. Meanwhile, you had that that little long-haired, that little, I don't remember, that that little demon chick running around saying that they're destroying your future, or whatever. I remember that. That was that was fucking wild. Like, on one hand, it's like, okay, I can appreciate, but on the other hand, it's like, bruh. <laughs> bruh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah where, where are the grown-ups? Where's where are the, the grown-ups? Grown grown yeah, they're, they're the ones who shut the reactors down. But, I mean, hey, whatever. Continue. So, I mean, there are no, there are no grown-ups, apparently, running yeah. the show. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's a, there's a new interest in in uh, nuclear reactors, fission fission reactors, and there is, uh, as I said, plenty of research in fusion. There's a company called Helion that has a new approach, and that is they have two two separate lumps of gas that they uh, again it's the light. It's the light gas with the hydrogen and the helium that's going to be fused together. And they uh, get it going very fast, and they slab them into each other. So the hope is to 
is to get these things to compress these atoms to approach each other very very closely, but just because they came from opposite ends of the device and they're traveling very fast relative to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I said gas. I'm not even sure that's true. I think they've got, I think they just got it in the form of a solid. They got these two bullets that, that shoot at each other. That might be the nope. way it works. Something like that. Anyway, yeah, they, that's, the, that's the idea, too. Two separate things that are mechanically shot at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, the economics of it is such that they can uh, they don't mind building hardware that's going to be used only a few times and recycled. So that normally they they build these things to last a long time, but here they're only expecting them to last once, so they build them differently. So that's all. Uh, that's a lot of research. But it seems like fusion is always 50 years in the future. Interesting. What's that? Just like it's that it's always like, you know, in the future kind of thing. It's just... And then if we do have a lot of fusion, we'll still have heat. We'll still have waste heat problem. So it still doesn't mm-hmm. solve everything. It'll solve the carbon, carbon problem, but it still won't. And then we'll have... We'll have global warming from the from all the fusion devices. Yeah. Yes, there's a there's a scientist named Sabine Hossenfelder has a YouTube video. She's a video a YouTube series. She's always got humor in there, and uh, one of her um, okay. uh, one of her videos is about. Uh, the global warming phenomenon and how it happens. And she said, oh, I got it wrong the first time around. And if she got it wrong the first time around, then the rest of us said the way it really works is uh, there's a certain level of the atmosphere from which heat is is emitted and that that level will become uh, a higher altitude. Yeah, so I don't remember it and maybe that means I didn't understand it. But gosh, uh, it's a good series. I recommend it. Sabine Hossenfelder. She's German, by the way. Okay. Been working on her English. You have to send me the link because I'm not sure how to spell her name. Yeah. Well, if you if you want, I, I mean, I'll happily tell it to you. It's H O S S E N S E. Hold on, hold on. Okay, how do you spell her first name? H O S S. E N. S F or S S. Like Hoss, like 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 the guy from Gunsmoke. Okay. I don't know. Okay. E N. And then we've got Felder, F-E-L-D-E-R. Oh, Sabine. Okay, there we go, Founder. Ha! I'll go check it out. Yeah, her YouTube channel is right there. Okay, I'll go check that out. He's got another interesting one called Flat Earthers, Wrong But Not Stupid. (coughs) 
so that might be interesting to check out. Well, I'm not going to lie. I haven't really been interested or care about a lot of the flat earth stuff. I have a bunch of other interesting developments in terms of sovereignty that if they go through, if they go through, there's a lot of really neat things that are going to be happening here in the near future that I would definitely share with other people. The earth is flat does not, I don't yeah. really care. <laughs> well, well, right, right. Well, what I see there is, is two things. One of them is it's an opportunity to explain how science works. So, you know, the point yeah. is not what shape the earth is. The point is how do we know what shape the earth is? Mm-hmm. And the uh, the the other is um, that this is a late phenomenon. You didn't you didn't find a lot of people saying the earth was flat a few decades ago. So what happened? Mm-hmm. Something interesting. Something interesting happens. So that it's a kind of a. I mean, the, the science is spreading more and more broadly, and then now it's spreading among people who don't who don't buy, who are skeptical, uh, and you know who are skeptical of things generally and. It goes along with a suspicion of, of of everything, you know, all officialdom, government and corporations and news media and and experts and everything. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a logical phenomenon there. So philosophy of science plus sociology pretty much is what it's mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, there was a, about 100 years ago a little... 120 years, I don't know, maybe it was before 1900, there was uh, a bunch of um, Foucault pendulums built. It's kind of a kind of a fashion because this fellow in France had proved that the Earth is rotating by by having a very tall pendulum that goes around in a circle, and and, and people wanted to see that, and so they bought them. And there's there's one of them in my town, and there's a, just a whole bunch of them around. And there's, there's, I saw one at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, and uh, it just swings back and forth. And as the Earth rotates, the, um, the the path of the pendulum keeps changing and rotating. And so it knocks over pegs. They surrounded the, the the area with pegs, and it just knocks over a peg every 15 minutes. And that's interesting. Hmm. You know, Sabine says it's the kind of problem that you can almost but not quite do as an individual, and so you have to trust somebody else. You have to trust scientists or somebody to, you know, to have done this experiment, and you have, to have not lie to you. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this woman sounds very interesting. She's definitely an objective stuff. Out. So fusion is is likely once we get it going is likely to be our big source of energy, and until then, if we're if we're desperate enough to overcome our past politics, then it'll be nuclear fission. Hmm. And possible concerns about terrorism, I suppose. Uh, yeah, it would be it would be hard to steal the material without dying if you didn't have the proper trucks and so on. Steal the material without dying. Uh, well, it's radioactive, you know. You get all burned. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Eh? Yeah, that that could that could end up very bad. I mean, maybe they could pull it off, but they wouldn't live very long. Anyway, um, 
and, and, and once you could do that, you, you cannot just use nuclear fuel itself as a, as a bomb. It doesn't, it's not going to, it just not, it won't, it won't do that. It has to be further enriched. And so these, these concerns, legitimate concerns are not that somebody's going to break into a, uh, a reactor facility and make off of the material. The, the concern is that some country that we don't like will be able to build a reactor and then use it to refine material that could be used. That's a concern. So, you know, uh, I find that so interesting because considering, like, the amount of times, like, the U.S. has gone in and created, like, like obviously they haven't thrown mushroom clouds right now, but, like, everybody's concerned that somebody else is going to start throwing around mushroom clouds. But it's like the U.S., the amount of times they go in and create proxy wars and then go in mm. and start shit and start doing all these things, it's like, I just find it cute that they're, like, the, you know, like you're saying, the concern is, like, these other countries are going to, oh, well, they're going to start doing bad things, but, and, like, and the U.S. doesn't. Like, I mean, right now they just funded Palestine and Hamas, and they funded Israel, so they're both killing each other right now, and they're funding both sides of that. Like, mm-hmm. really, though? Really? Anyway, continue. Yeah. Yeah, well, I- Iran had a uh, program of... Uh, refining, uh, they used centrifuges with aluminum tubes that they had to get from us uh, to, you need to separate two isotopes of uranium, and an isotope is where you have the same chemical element is determined by the number of protons in the nucleus, that's the number of positive charges, and the number of neutrons is variable, and that gives you your isotope. Uh, so mm-hmm. some of these isotopes are really uh, use, useful in a bomb, and, and Others are not, and so the most of it is not. So what you have to do is you take your uranium and you separate out the 235 from the 238, and I think the 235 is what you need. Uh, so that there are different schemes were invented to, to separate them. One was to make make it a gas with uranium hexafluoride, and which is uh, it's dense enough to swim in. By the way, um, hmm. I don't recommend it. Okay, so. It's no. Uh, and, disclaimer out there. <laughs> right, and then uh, put that, make it rotate, put it into a pipe and make it spin uh, a circular pipe and make it spin around really fast, and then then some will be fl- be flung out to the you know the denser will be flung out to the outside, and then, then the lighter will be kind of floating on the, in, the inside curve. And I guess they siphon it off. Uh, there are a couple of other methods, but these guys, these Iranians, were using a centrifuge. Okay, and they controlled the centrifuge with with uh, Windows, with uh, Western bought computers running the Windows operating system. So the U.S. government got together with Bill Gates and said, "We want you to, uh, we want you guys to help us." And who wrote the software? I do not know, but it's extremely sophisticated. They put it into every copy of the Windows operating system that was sold in the world, uh, in, in hopes that the Iranians would buy one which they did, computers, which they did. And so first of all, it identifies the fact that it's in an, an Iranian computer that's being used for this. Uh, it, it had to it had to bypass some some other, it had to copy itself through, it had, it had to copy itself to other computers in the same network. Uh, and, and then once it figured out that it was on a computer that was controlling one of the, uh, one of the centrifuges, 
then it would run it a little bit fast and then a little bit slow, a little bit too fast, a little bit too slow, so that it wouldn't set off the detectors that everything we thought when everything was normal, but it set up some sort of mechanical vibration that da- eventually damaged the equipment. Uh, I think that was uh, the way it worked. What was the ultimate result of that? Yeah, it, it was physical destruction of the equipment. Uh, quite amazing story. Stuxnet, S-T-U-X-N-E-T. So, yeah, people do try to develop these things. We want to join the nuclear club, and we don't want them to, and because then they'll be just like us. Hmm. That's like a policeman saying, I, I, I'm justified in shooting your dog 19 times if he barks while I'm bashing down your door over a plant, but if you so much as slap my dog while he's mulling your arm, I'll put you away to, to, to rot in prison for life uh, for, for felony assault on a police officer. Yeah. Similar kind of mentality. Yeah. No imbalance of power there, boy. Anyway, so uh, we got fusion energy, tabletop reactors, uh, intensive agriculture, solar power. Yeah, Elon Musk says that a, a small a small percentage of the desert will give us enough solar power to run the entire, entire country or the entire world if we fill one in each desert. In in Africa, there's plenty of sunlight. There's not so much de- demand for electricity. The demand for electricity is in Europe. And so uh, there is at least one cable across the Mediterranean. There, there are plans for more to, to transmit electric power from uh, solar power farms in North Africa up to Germany. I'm not sure if it goes across the Strait of Gibraltar. Engineering projects do exist. There's some scandal around wind farms. Uh, First one is I've seen seen them being installed and I've seen them going up the highway. Uh, They don't no, there's no company in the United States that makes them, and nobody seems to. No, I mean the government seems to say, let's encourage uh, and support American companies to make these things. They just buy them from a company in Denmark. So the scandal is, I guess that's the scandal. The other scandal is try to find statistics on how uh, efficient these things are, or how much power they put out in the field. You'll find you'll find uh, numbers on how much power they put out in their tests. But in the field, the wind is sometimes either too strong, in which case they have to clamp them, they have to clamp them and not on them, otherwise they'll run through much, too much power through and burn them out, uh, or, or not running not fast enough, in which case you don't get power out. So there's only this Goldilocks zone where, uh, where you get any power of these things. And you cannot find, so I've read, you cannot find published numbers on what the actual experience with the amount of power they get to get these things in a typical day or a typical year. Those numbers are not published. Presumably because if they were, you know, whoever's buying these things would stop. Other people would say this is not worth it. That's depressing. 
putting on so much, so much of our so many res- all these resources into uh, into wind power, and if it's not cost effective, that's very sad. And there's a reason why the oil business has been such a good business all these years. It's got really no competitor, no alternative. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure where to go from there. I believe we've got six minutes. Yeah, it's, well, no, four minutes, four minutes and 45 seconds, so. If you don't want to keep going, that's fine. We, we can totally call it. We can totally call well, it. I just wasn't sure if, like, you were you were finished or if, you know, I mean, there's really no point of starting, like, a new topic, really, unless you have yeah. something else to add. Well, I'm, I'm not really sure where else to go from there. Yeah. Well, you know what, then? I think I think we'll just call it then for tonight because it's not going to be enough time to actually get anything that's going to be worth discussing yeah. in depth, unfortunately, over the course of, like, you know, four minutes. So, but, um, yeah, if you want to get, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to message you and there's a couple things that I want to talk about next and then we'll, we'll come up with something. And if you want to do like, um, uh, like a guided meditation or something next week, that would be, that would be awesome. I don't mean, I'm not pushing you and saying that you want to, because I know you've been getting into these things, but like, if we're here next week and you want to, definitely I will open up the space and we'll just kind of plan the show a little bit more accordingly that you can do that if you want. Sure, that'll be good. That'll be good. Excellent. Okie dokie. I'll try to combine it with with, uh, something useful. Sure. Excellent. I like the sounds of that. Perfect. All right. Thanks for popping on the show tonight. And see you guys next week at 6 p.m. PST, 9 p.m. EST. Um, Time change for you guys. No time change for me just an hour later. So we will catch you guys again next week. Have a very happy Friday. Good night. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.